want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, it's... 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going this week? Good. I'm ever so slightly catching up with some of the things that I was behind on. And thankfully, uh, some seasons and also some series are ending or have ended recently. So that will be much easier. It frees up some time, certainly. Uh, we've got a number of series that will be having their finales this week, next week, over the next uh, few weeks, actually. But I've been catching up. I finished my Person of Interest marathon, so I've seen all of season two and season three. I'm all caught up. Um, I think I w- I've been working on Adventure Time. I don't know if I'll finish that next or if I'll go back and fill in the gaps with uh, Orange is New Black. But I think those are the next two and then with Utopia thrown in there as well. The the big reason I'm proud of myself this week is that now coming up on two full seasons late, like a solid year, year and a half late, I have finally mailed out the prizes to our two previous Amazing Race Pool winners. I have been walking around with Amazon gift cards in my purse for literally one of them for like an, a year and a half and the other one since since uh was it Dan or Bob Dan and Bob won the last two and I've been walking around with their prizes because I kept waiting for a gnome the previous gnome Nomi died uh he got killed by the was it UPS or FedEx I don't remember which um and so I was going to get a new one to send but then it wasn't gnome seasons so there was nothing out it was like a whole thing so I finally said, screw it, they need their prizes, and sent them out. So it only takes me a year and a half sometime, guys. But if I promise you a prize in the Televerse, you will eventually receive it. <laughs> that's perfect. I It's just going all over my head right now. It's all good. No, see, well, it's because have you been – you haven't participated in the Amazing Race pools in the past. I have not. I've not watched a single episode of The Amazing Race. Well, it's you know, there's, it's one of my favorite reality shows, though it has gone down a little bit for me on the rankings. But uh, we're going to talk about some new reality this week. We're going to try to keep things short because we're postponing the DVD shelf's triumphant return one more week so that we can play the audio from the Hannibal Press Room at Comic-Con because there was some really nice, uh, fun stuff in there. The audio quality, some of it's hard to hear, um, but I think you can under- discern enough of it, and it's fun and, and interesting enough that I think Hannibal fans will enjoy it. So we're putting that out this week, and it's going to be a lengthy one. So we're going to try to keep things a little shorter here we're not going to uh, read all the feedback we got from you guys so we did really appreciate it um, we should probably also mention that uh, we don't have a listener feedback segment on this is our design just because of how we record it but get, we read all of that too so we always appreciate it uh, and so if people leave us comments at the website or email us or send us uh, you know ads on twitter we are always happy to, to hear from you guys and we love getting the feedback yeah, and I think, well, I have been thinking recently about season three, upcoming season three, and uh, I am going to incorporate some kind of um, interactivity with the fans, so we will mention those in the future. But for now, thank you for everything that you've been 
giving us, whether that's feedback or questions or criticism, because all of it is appreciated. All of it is appreciated. We got a comment at the website with, with a little bit of all, a little bit of all of that <laughs> uh, for one of our earlier podcasts this, in the past couple of weeks. And it's always great to know that people are listening. So, and the same thing is true here. So I talked with a bunch of you guys this week, but we're, you know, it's a, it's a long podcast. So we're going to hold the listener feedback until next week. Um, any announcements, anything we should keep in mind for the coming weeks? Yes. Um, Legend of Korra will finish its third season uh, this week. And I know we received a comment on the site about that uh, not about a few weeks ago, I think. So uh, I will be talking about that whole season for next week's podcast. And I probably won't have had the chance to catch up with it, but I look forward to hearing your thoughts and adding that to my list of shows that I need to watch. I also want to mention, because I've been lax in mentioning this the last few weeks, but it's Batman month at uh, at Sound on Sight right now, and we're putting uh, putting out articles of, actually, I say we, I haven't written anything. Uh, the, the site is putting out lots of different articles about Batman, and they're fantastic and really interesting reads from the comics perspective to the films to, you know, I really should write up the Batman animated series because it's the best interpretation of Batman. Clearly, I love it. Um, but we'll see if there's time for that over the course of the rest of the month. But you guys should check all that out at Sound on Sight. Shall we get into it? It's going to be there's, there's a full week of TV here. Let's do it. Let's do it. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with our week in comedy. Just after the storm breaks with the perfect amount of light. You can catch a glimpse of magic if the timing is right. Rainbows are improbable, beautiful and rare. But so are you, and so is this, the love that we share. Too vast to hold and too small to name, it's no wonder why. You have to stand between the rain and the sun to see a rainbow in the sky. All the things that had to go right, all the things that had to go wrong. And led us to the place where we were going all along Right now they fall away Right now it's just us two Right now we make a promise If you do, then I do too This week in comedy, we're going to kick things off with Garfunkel and Oates, Rule 34, then go on to Adventure Time, Joshua, and Margaret Investigations. I feel like I should say Joshua, whoever they say. <laughs> uh, married, the play date, you were the worst Sunday fun day. Uh, and then finally, the Wilfred finale, Resistance and Happiness. And uh, we'll spend a little extra time on that, of course. But first, let's kick things off with Garfunkel and Oates. I've said uh, over the past couple of weeks that I enjoyed the second episode actually quite a bit more than I enjoyed the pilot for Garfunkel and Oates, even though I did enjoy the pilot. Uh, was that true for you as well? Overall, I would say, yeah. The The reservations I had about the music last week, I think, were addressed somewhat in this episode. It integrated much better. I actually thought that the song that they did about uh, Rainbow Connection was really, really good. Um, and much different than what you would expect based on what this series is. Uh, but with that, I think I have a new reservation, which is uh, how meta it can get. And it might just be the premise of this episode, but bringing in Chris Hardwick and kind of doing a lot of meta commentary on Garfunkel and Oates um, as a duo outside of this series, uh, I'm a little bit worried that that might start to become a big thing because that was a big problem that I had with uh, the first few episodes of Marin. 
Yeah, it is very aware of them. And that is something that I seem to be interested in for the show. It's uh, uh, it's following them or fictionalized versions of the two of them. So we'll see how much that continues. But I did enjoy their alter egos, I must say. It was, it was Epiphany and I don't remember the other character's name. Uh, Chevrolet? Chevrolet? Yeah, maybe. I think that was it. Uh, I thought I thought Abby Elliott and Sherilyn Beard were, were really funny, and uh, but for me though that that uh, the subplot with the the, the Muppets basically and uh, with Tignataro uh, was was really fun, and then I also liked the stuff we got with with Chris Parnell. So for me, it was mostly stuff I really enjoyed. The funniest moment of the entire episode for me is when they were both imagining their own versions of the porns that they would do. And Kate's is just this dancing, singing apple. Like, what the hell was that about? No clue. Ugh, whatever. It was good, though. It was fun. Well, how about let's move on to Adventure Time and Joshua and Margaret, which we saw part of this at Comic-Con. It was at, uh, I should say, myself and the other people in the room saw this at Comic-Con. Uh, it was part of the panel. And I always enjoy when we get time with with those characters we've gotten more time with the dad very little time with the mom so at least based on the adventure time i've seen and so it was it was really fun to 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 see what we we got in this week's episode i really enjoyed it at least what did what did you think yeah it was great uh margaret especially who was just a badass rolling around at the beginning with a crossbow um and was just dominating the episode i thought it was really unfortunately sad when they go visit the couple and uh, Wyatt is the guy who's stealing his wife's pies, and he just starts breaking down, just crying because of how guilty he feels, and uh, that was a, was a weird moment in an otherwise really solid and funny episode, I thought. Well, especially because we know eventually Tree Trunks finds love, but with, oh, who is it? The pig, right? Her Yeah. And she now she's with the, the pig, whose name I don't remember. Uh, so to see her... Her husband uh, from the yeah that was just bizarre and entertaining <laughs> and disturbing in the right kind of way. Always have fun with Adventure Time. Any other thoughts on this episode? How how is this season shaping up for you? Because this is your first season watching. Yeah, it's been good. Um, I wish that we had gotten Gravity Falls this week because I kind of like now enjoy watching the two of them at the same time. And actually, the the shape shifting entity in this one reminded me of the one that we got in that second episode of Gravity Falls, but. I've been really enjoying this um, and have been occasionally dipping back into previous episodes when I can. So I, I imagine at some point I'll go through the whole thing. Good times. Well, let's move on uh, to some live action here. Back to live action, I should say, and, and go to FX and Married, the play date. We had our first Michaela Watkins episode. I, I believe she's going to be in more. I don't remember. I don't have it in my notes here, but uh, she's, she's in the press notes and everything. So I would be very surprised if we didn't see more of her. I, I thought this was fun. Huzzah, yes. Anybody who was on Trophy Wife who is now getting work, I greatly appreciate that. And she was great. Uh, just played the very, not depressed, but just so over everything wife. Um, and that was a really weird family unit as well. Uh, God, the actor whose name I can't remember, who was in Mulholland Drive, just has the best facial expressions. So, yeah, this one definitely worked for me. And we got to see Lena... Um, kind of divulge some of her problems in ways that that's mostly been given to the husband. And I think the other thing that I wanted to mention was the the older husband for Jess. Um, 
I didn't think that he would like develop into a character, but they kind of used him relatively well in this episode. So that's good because I thought that he would kind of just be on the outskirts um, and, and not really given any material. Yeah, I also went back this week and watched the third episode, and I it, I do believe it was out of order, or I just completely spaced when I was watching the initial press uh, press kit, the the DVD they sent out. I don't remember having seen it before. I like that it really featured Paul Reiser. Of course, he's in this episode as well. I, I am enjoying him as that uh, husband character for Jenny Slayton, but but really the way the two play off of each other and you know they, they have a good dynamic and it's just nice to see Paul Reiser on my TV again uh, as for I think are, were you talking about Patrick Fischler the Michaela Watson's yes, husband that was him yeah I, such a fun actor I really lo- love when he pops up I was listening to Hey Watch This with friends of the show uh, Paul uh, Paul Goebel and David Bax and they were talking about this episode uh, this week and they said Patrick Fischler you know from everything <laughs> if you if you don't connect the face with uh with the name or the name with the face you know put his name into google and you'll see and you'll be like oh that guy he's been on a million things and he's always a lot of fun so it was it's a less it's less accessible or less immediately fun character to or relatable character maybe as compared to the the Michaela Watkins character who by the end of the episode she may be kind of nuts but she, you you can at least relate with her feelings of ostracization in the community um but i i still really enjoyed his sort of very still performance and then just Nat Faxon you know Russ's uh just like his sense of awe at realizing what he knows the house from was mm-hmm. just a lot of a lot and trying to shepherd the young boy. I mean, yeah, it's good times. Yeah, absolutely. And also just when they get invited out. Oh, great. You know, watching kids swim. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, now, this may be I, I enjoyed you're the worst, but this may be the first time that I actually liked married more than it. Oh, interesting. I know. What did you think? For you're the worst. Yeah, this was my favorite episode so far. And it might just have been the conceit of this competition that our group is having with these massive hipsters led by Thomas Middleditch. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yes, I could not place him, but that's, of course, from uh, Silicon Valley. I liked him yeah. so much more in this role. Right? He no was comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was just a really fun premise, I thought, and they got a lot of good material out of it. I. I slowly but surely realized that I am Jimmy, and it's not just the eggs over the pancakes and the Peter Gabriel over um, the Phil Collins. But uh, yeah, I I'm, I have to admit that I'm relating to him a lot. I really liked what they what they did with Lindsay. Just that I, that unsurpri- that, that surprising uh, sort of just like stealth emotion that comes out towards the end of the episode. I thought that was really interesting, and I hope they go the messy way with it. I hope they keep it honest and they keep it messy and they don't just continue to have uh, it be a comedic punchline that she hates her husband. No, and it seems like this episode really did right by her and gave her that certainly, but also um, slightly complex emotions, at least based on what we've seen so far, and certain motivations. So that's good. Like, And I think that's why this was my favorite one. We've talked a little bit about how some of these side characters have been used better in some episodes but this is the first one that felt almost like an ensemble yeah definitely it's 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 certainly a very confident uh season so far this has been a really good year for freshman comedies yeah atypical it is an atypically good year you know if, if you look at the calendar year i should say uh for for freshman comedies particularly on cable 
Yeah, between these two FX ones that we have right now, Broad City, Looking, Silicon Valley, Review, yeah, it's it's going to be tough to pick some of the better ones for the year-end lists. Certainly. Well, any final thoughts on You're the Worst, or shall we get to Wilfred? Daniel Craig looks like an upset baby. I love that sort of pause, and then, oh man, like, <laughs> why did you ruin Daniel Craig for me? I just That's such a fun little bit of uh, performance there. Uh, but let's move on to Wilfred and its finale, Resistance and Happiness. And I said last week that I didn't trust them to not undo everything that they had set up, both with Jenna and also with Wilfred. And they undid both of them. But they undid them both in a way that made me very happy. I was I was pleased with with these two episodes. I thought they made for a really solid finale. Uh, not I, I don't I didn't love this finale so much that I was happy with the way that the show chased its tail to get a dog pun in there for for a season and a half obsessing about what Wilfred was. But I do think that it was a really satisfying finale. Um, of course, that's coming from someone who's been less enamored with the show. Someone who's been more enamored, Sean. How did this? How did these two episodes work for you as a one-two punch of a finale? Uh, kind of strangely, as a one-two punch, I certainly appreciate, and it had been said in the media that um, answers were going to be given, and so that I think gives some fans or some viewers who aren't necessarily fans closure in some ways. I wish that it had been the ninth episode that had done that rather than the last one because I felt like the penultimate episode that we got, which ends with Ryan on the beach um, after they've put Wilfred down, was the kind of emotional success that you would want out of a season finale and certainly a series finale. So it's weird to say that because I probably would have tacked on a few of the minutes from this finale so that, you know, we get... um, Wilford in transition from the chosen ones that he's going to um, just to have some more amount of closure and not ending it on a really depressing note. But uh, yeah, that ninth episode I thought was really impressive and definitely got to me. You know, this series has been so, so good at recreating every little aspect of what it is to be a dog owner. And for anybody who has dogs, they will see the care and attention that goes into this throughout all four seasons, I think. And obviously the end of that and the most difficult part is when you have to put a dog down. And I think that they stay true to that amount of detail and and honesty. And that was a very difficult and also rewarding scene to watch, I think, for this series, which has been struggling a bit in this past season, in this last season. And I think over the course of these last three episodes really found itself again. Well, and when you talk about that scene, the the, the part of that scene – that was the most devastating for me was Fiona Goobelman's performance as Jenna. And I think we take for granted watching the show that it's about Ryan and this dog, but it's Jenna's dog. And we, we only see him when he's spending time with Ryan, but he lives with Jenna. Most of the time he's with Jenna. That's just all off screen. And I think the show really sold um, that moment. And the actress as well, Fiona Goobelman really sold how devastating that that was for her obviously we know how significant it is for ryan um but he's also had some chance to prepare and to talk with wilfred and to you know he's had more interaction with that than than jenna has had so uh i thought absolutely agree that that scene was incredibly powerful um 
I I still prefer though the way it ended in the 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 final episode with this realization that no, you're just crazy. <laughs> you're just crazy, but that's okay. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, going back to the the season one finale of the closet door and everything, I thought that was a nice touch as well. Yeah, it it certainly worked on one level. I think um, that there were at least three or four ways it probably could have ended, and I just would have preferred a different one. But it it wasn't. I I don't think disappointing. So. Um, even though maybe some things were slightly contrived, I don't know if we needed to see Drew back um, and some other things. How did you feel about the Jenna stuff? That no, Jenna's exactly the same person who's been, you know, leading him on and then getting cold feet, or that he's been reading all this huge relationship into their neighbors, and you know, so how did you feel about the way that that played out? Um. Not totally satisfied, but it, it led to Ryan basically realizing everything and giving her a piece of his mind. And that was, I think, a very good scene that needed to happen because Ryan has been at some points quite pathetic in this series and at other points just very easily manipulated. And so to see him stand up for himself. Um, and give his instinctual reaction to something, I thought that worked. Yeah, I was a little. Uh, I don't. I don't know that they earned him about to kill himself with a smoothie I, that seemed to kind of when he had made theoretically he had made this progress um to have it just immediately vanish and then immediately return didn't really work for me as much i understood what they were going for but i don't know how about you yeah it like you had said earlier um it felt maybe like they were really pushing that full circle and to get those scenes again that were taken from the pilot in there um, probably wasn't entirely earned. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I can give it leeway there just because I always appreciate echoing and stuff like that, even if it is a bit uh, heavy handed. Yeah. And again, it's another thing. Finales are, are also, they're hard. It's really hard. Like anybody who's written anything, that last sentence, sometimes it just, you're like, yes, and you, it comes to you and you're set. But most of the time, it's just racking your brain, trying to think of something that doesn't sound trite, and what's a good summation sentence that is something new, but not too new, and they're hard. And so I think this show did, for me, it sounds like it worked a lot better than it for me than it did for you, Sean, but I think for either one of us, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> oh, certainly, yeah, and at the end of the day, like, this has been a wonderful series for me. Um, something that's, for the past few years, it's been... Louis, Girls, and Wilfred, and that's been the third half-hour series for me that I've appreciated the most, and that has hit home the hardest, and uh, it's really sad to see it go. I mean, we have talked about the issues that it, it has had. Uh, I certainly appreciate you watching along, even though you were a little bit skeptical at certain points, but uh, it's I, I know for a fact, um, as opposed to another series, which we'll talk about in, in this podcast that will be ending next week, I will go back and rewatch Wilfred because there's a lot more to digest and to get on a second viewing. Yeah, certainly. If only to watch and think of what it would what it actually looked like now that we do have confirmed that it was just a dog the whole time, uh, which is pretty delightful and fun. Uh, certainly rewards repeat viewing if you want to think about it that way. But um, let's let's wrap up here our week in comedy. What what wins the week in comedy for you? It actually was a really strong week, but uh, for me, uh, episode nine of Wilfred would be the winner. 
I'm going to give it, uh, I think I'll give it to the one-two punch of Wilfred. It's not actually my favorite thing in comedy this week, uh, which I would probably give to Married, but they had a way harder task <laughs> so <laughs> than anything else this week. The finales are hard, and they did a good job. So uh, I will give with an extra, like with an asterisk for, you know, a comparative, you know, they for what they had to achieve, they did the best job, I would say, this week. So uh, I'll also give it to Wilfred. And with all that annoying caveating out of the way, let's take a break and come back with our week in reality and genre. This week in reality, I'll talk a little Top Chef duels, and then we'll we'll break down. I'm sure it'll be another lengthy chat about so you think you can dance, and then we'll move on to our weekend genre. But before we get there, let's let's talk reality. So last week I forgot to mention that Top Chef duels had started. I watched the season premiere, which was Richard Blaze versus uh, Marcel Vigneron. I want to say I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Uh, this week they had the second episode, which is Shirley Chung versus Brooke Williamson, um, and. I I have been in the past a very big fan of Top Chef. I really enjoy it. I was intrigued to see what Top Chef Duels was going to be. I've now seen uh, two episodes. I would only have seen one except that my sister wanted to watch it. So I was spending time with my sister. Uh, And if you're listening, it was a lovely evening well spent, sister. But the reason I enjoy Top Chef is the food, which always looks really interesting and unusually delicious and creative and all of that. And you pick up like just by watching chefs, you pick up a lot of, of little tips and things that you can notice them doing that maybe you'll try out even just with technique or how they use certain pots or whatever. Um, but even much, much more than that, if I want to pick up that stuff, there are plenty of other cooking shows. The reason I like top chef is that you you get to know chefs over the course of a season. You watch them develop and grow. You watch them try new things. You watch them put into different situations. And you're following these 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 characters, basically, over the course of a season. That's immediately removed when you have Top Chef duels where every week it's two different chefs facing off on a series of challenges. At the end, there's going to be some sort of, sounds like a battle royale with the winners of each of the first, I think, six or seven episodes or something like that. Um, But each week it's going to be new people, and I don't care who wins between the two of these. I mean, I like each of these different chefs for in different ways. I'm not a, you know, Marcel, I'm not really a fan of him, but I'm sure his food is delicious. But if I want to just watch head-to-head showdowns, there are plenty of other shows I can watch. The reason I watch Top Chef is to spend time with the chefs over several weeks. That's why I watch any reality competition show. So I was disappointed by the construction of the season of Top Chef. I was hoping for something new and different uh, and not something that feels exactly like the the uh, the various seasons of Top Chef Masters or um, 
or just you know random episodes of of Iron Chef that of course don't have the time limits. So uh, yeah, I I was underwhelmed by Top Chef Duels. I don't know how much I'll tune in. It will basically depend on whether I'm watching it live or if I have to make time later in the week. Um, but that those are my thoughts on Top Chef Duels. I will also say on the off chance that there is a chef in our a professional chef in our listenership. Email the Televerse, uh, the Televerse at gmail.com, because I would love to have you on one of our Informed Opinions segments. I, wouldn't that be awesome? i got to get a chef on to talk about representations of cooking uh, and chefs on TV. But Because um, I, I don't know any in person, but uh, if you're out there, email. Uh, any thoughts on Top Chef or Top Chef Duels, Sean? Uh, you cannot suck me in. I won't let you do it again. Don't do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even, you know, I don't think it's worth it for this, but I do think it's worth it for So You Think You Can Dance. And let's go on to our, uh, our thoughts. I'm going to put it <laughs> kindly. Our thoughts on the Michael Jackson episode of So You Think You Can Dance. Before we get to, we'll, we'll get to the actual content of the episode. Um, just, I don't understand the Michael Jackson tributes. It just seems like with as many allegations surrounding him, including one of the choreographers, and I, I don't know if he's just if he was a former contestant or if he just has been his choreo- been a choreographer for the show before, uh, alleging that that he was molested as a child by Michael Jackson for years. Uh, I don't understand really why anybody wants to touch that controversy with a 10-foot pole, or in this case, just pretend it doesn't exist, like happened uh, in this episode. Did that occur to you at all while you were watching? Kind of, and it's it's a weird thing. So I think it is useful to bring up, but I think my final opinion about these discussions is always... Okay, Sean, just do your best to separate the artist from the art. And so I kind of just use that as a fallback excuse to appreciate things that I should otherwise have a more difficult relationship with. So I don't know. I mean, you can't you can't argue the fact that he changed pop music, popular music. It was an amazing musician and dancer. These are all very true things. Very influential dancer as well. Uh, but again, it just seems like... This was a very pro-Michael Jackson two hours. He was the best. He inspired so many people. The, all of this great content. Look at look at his new music video that you guys should all go buy. It was very much two hours of shilling uh, for this album. As well as, of course, using some of his original music, some of his covers. Smile, of course, as Nigel mentions, was by Charlie Chaplin uh, for Modern Times. As well as, you know, there's another other, uh, there's at least one other cover that they used of his, but I don't know. It's just, and I think when, as we talk about this episode, which we'll, I'll stop harping on this now, but it just seems, I just, I just don't understand. There's very little conversation of Woody Allen that doesn't include, or, or uh, Roman Polanski that doesn't include this, but for some reason, people are much more comfortable paying no attention to that those allegations behind the curtain for Michael Jackson, and I don't understand it. Um, let's move on to the content of these two hours, though. Uh, shall we start or end with Valerie and Tanisha? Let's just get it out of the way. What the f- America, 
you have failed this show. How do we make this into you have failed this city ripoff? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, this is bullshit. Just a lot of bullshit. I mean, yep. like, okay, but Valerie had, I thought, a good performance this week. Maybe not good. Uh, in... Incredibly sloppy, and I can't believe Mary Murphy didn't tear her a new one for how incredibly sloppy it was. She did some things very well. Yeah, I was going to say, some maybe things. not good in the context of the other performers, but certainly yeah. in terms of the ones that she's done this season. I would agree um, with that. But obviously the votes weren't decided on that. They were decided on last week's performance, which should have gotten her kicked out and not Tanisha, who was awesome all season. Yep, and was very good last week and was very good this week. What the fuck? <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. I, I will say I tweeted a congratulations to Tanisha and she favorited it. Awesome. Way to go, Tanisha. Uh, she, I mean, and she's going to be on the, that's the thing. Once you make the top 10 for So You Think You Can Dance, that means you're in for the tour. Keep in mind, only one person wins. By making the top 10, they've essentially won. They haven't, obviously, they haven't gotten the contract on Broadway and the $150,000 or whatever the prize money is. Of course, that's really winning. But most people, most people who do that show aren't going to win. So if they make the top 10, at least they have a contract to two or 70 cities and that can hopefully lead to other, other work. I mean, there's, and they hopefully they improve and train and it's, it's a, st it's steady work at least for a year or, or uh, several months. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and the way the judges keep talking, they're trying to ensure that nobody wins except for Ricky, maybe Jessica, but Tanisha wasn't going to win based on the narrative that the producers are building. So at least she's in the top 10. Uh, Valerie shouldn't be in the top 10. But what did you think about about Rudy? Rudy, uh, it was certainly his time. And maybe in all honesty, one of the last two weeks would have been acceptable as well. I really liked him on this season as a presence. Just love the energy, love his character. I'm sure most people would agree with that, I hope. Um, because there wasn't really anything pompous about him that I thought. So I thought, um, I think Nigel had, had mentioned that specifically as well, that he thought he was one kind of person and he ended up being something else. Um, but yeah, he, as good as he has been, as strong as he has been in certain performances, it certainly was his time, I think. And I think for a lot of people, it was harder to take because he was really good this week. I thought his routine was, if not the, definitely one of the best of the night. And I really enjoyed his solo. I liked that he went a different route and presented himself as a power dancer. Because when you, he may not be a power dancer compared to any of the all-stars. But when you put him next to, to Ricky and to... Uh, and to Zach and even to Casey, who's taller, but still, he's really got that strength going for him. So I thought he did a really good solo. He did a really good couple uh, couples dance. Um, but based on last week, I had said I thought he should go home. So I couldn't really argue with America. As, as emotional as as it got, he really didn't want. You know, he was not ready. But um, they'll go on the tour. He'll be on the tour. I'll get to see him dance when I go. I'm, oh, I, I got my tickets. I'm going. I'm very excited. My sister and I are going to go see the tour. Are you going to go see the tour? Uh, I got to look up tickets immediately. Yeah, I, I really want to go. Yeah, they're going quickly, at least by me. Uh, very quickly. Right <laughs> uh, so if you want to go, go. I've never been before. I'll, I can report after I get, after, after in October when I've uh, been. But uh, 
I was surprised. There were nine seats left in because we oh. wanted to sit closer. There were nine seats left at the Madison show in the the closer closer seats. Um, the higher price point seats were almost all gone. Uh, so, granted, those seat performances are in October. If it's if you're later in the in the span later in the tour, it might be less of a quick sellout. But I was very surprised for how quickly things were selling. Uh, any final thoughts on the on the rest of the showings this week? Uh, again, I continue to have no problem about the Ricky narrative because actually this might have been one of the two or three best performances for me from him. So I was kind of just in awe again. And okay. Earth Song, love Earth Song, such a good song. And so that Jessica routine was probably boosted a little bit for me because of that. But uh, regardless, I thought also that was a good performance. He is ridiculously uh, capable, but I'm more looking forward to what's going to go happen with uh, Zach. And uh, I don't remember who Casey's with, but uh, yeah, I've, I've, there's some couple other partnerships I'm more interested in. What did you think uh, of, of Comfort? Did you enjoy Because I know you enjoy some of the hip-hop stuff. What did you think of Comfort? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So definitely worked for me comfort's a badass she's really good yeah. uh, if you're looking for more comfort routines there's a lot of really good ones but one of my favorite that i've seen was the one that she did with jasmine who of course was with emilio last week uh it is, from last season the two of them had a number and it was awesome so i highly recommend that one but uh any final thoughts again <laughs> sorry i keep repeating sorry, myself uh yeah i'm voting off valerie and probably zach if i if i represented america Okay, uh, Valerie, and I don't know. They both did a good job, so I'm 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 pleading the fifth. <laughs> as long as I, I, the only one I care about right now is Valerie. As long as Valerie is not in the top four, I will accept whatever America chooses for the others. Um, for me, I'm giving it to So You Think You Can Dance. You only watch So You Think You Can Dance, so it clearly wins your week in reality. Let's move on to genre. First up, I'm going to preview Intruders, which is the new show that's starting. It's it's only eight episodes that will be airing with uh, Doctor Who on BBC America. It'll be airing afterwards. It's based on a novel by Michael Marshall uh, Smith of the same the same title, or it's The Intruders, the, the novel is, and it's, uh was created by, by Glenn Morgan, the show was, or this adaptation, and uh, it stars people that genre fans will be familiar with, particularly uh, John Sim and, and James Frain. Uh, uh, Mira Servino, obviously another very, very uh, famous face in in the show. The composer is Bear McCreary, so there's lots of, uh, you know, obviously those who are unaware, Glenn Morgan was one of the uh, the standout uh, badass writers for the X Files, so uh, his name immediately has me interested in in the show. I've seen only the first episode, and the thing that I most enjoy about this show after one episode is that. It does not care if you understand what's going on. It does not explain itself. After what I would have a sense that this is going to be something that maybe by the end of the first season you get have a grasp on what's going on. And that doesn't mean that it's hard to understand or that it's trippy. It just means that the characters don't spend time saying exposition to each other that they wouldn't actually say to each other. So when you have weird stuff, mysterious stuff happening, the person who's trying to be mysterious doesn't then turn to camera and go, by the way, let me catch you up. And I love that. I can deal with not really understanding what's going on as long as I have some sort of in. And what the John Sim character is very much the in because his his wife, which is 
th- those two characters are not introduced for until you have at least about five minutes of other confusing stuff. <laughs> then you meet the two of them. There's a relationship established almost immediately that you care about, a bond between the two. The wife character disappears, and he goes to try to find her. There's this other stuff going on with, like, James Frain is killing people, and there's, like, people committing suicide, and there's other stuff going on. It's, it's something about people being immortal. It's, it's something about subtones of frequencies of... I have no idea. But I like this cast, I, I trust this creator, and I'm very interested after one episode. So whether it just all collapses like a flan in a cupboard, or comes into something else, remains to be seen. But I think if any of this stuff sounds interesting to you guys, check out the pilot, see what you think, and go along for the ride. It's only eight episodes, it could be really interesting, it could turn into nothing, but after one episode I'm I'm far more engaged by everyone except the creepy kid. I'm not really interested in the the creepy pre in the in the creepy tween. We'll see if that changes. Uh but other than that I'm really invested and interested in most of the characters here and uh I look forward to puzzling it out with you uh if you should watch Sean. Have you heard anything about the show? Uh my friend mentioned it cuz he watches BBC all the time, so he's seen previews and is excited about it. He's also a big Doctor Who fan, so I'm sure that he's going to drag me along through both of those. Well, I know I'll certainly be talking about Doctor Who next week. I'll be I'll be reviewing it at Sound On Sight, and uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm hopeful about some things and not about others, so hopefully the power of Capaldi will overwhelm my frustration with... Stephen Moffat. We'll we'll see, but let's let's move on though to some of the genre that you've caught up with, which is this week True Blood. It's been several episodes, but this week's episode is called Love Love Is to Die. Uh, what have you thought of these past few weeks? Uh, you know, this is ending in a much better way than Dexter ended. So, be, regardless of some of the issues that I had in the first few episodes of this season, um, at least catching up with three episodes in a row this week was perfectly fine you know i guess it comes as it always has with true blood going into it with the right mindset which is to not think too hard otherwise you'll start to become frustrated but uh, a lot of interesting things have happened um eric is now cured of hep v because uh he drank from sarah newland's blood so he's good to go uh Bill refuses to do it for whatever reason because he feels like if he lives in the world with Suki in it, then he is just going to further ruin any of the potential relationships that she might have. Because so angst, that, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. So it's the, next week is going to be the finale, so it, it seems like Bill's going to be the big character to go. Um, but elsewhere, I think that they've been doing very well. Uh, they brought back Hoyt after his mom died, and now... Him and Jessica are back together. It was like kind of weird at first, but then very comfortable. So like she had to retell him everything that she had glamoured out of him, which was good. After that, uh, once Jason had heard about it, he tried to run and explain himself, but then got punched in the face. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, it's the some of the the worst plots that have been going on, which was Violet, the crazy vampire that Jason was seeing, and also. Um, Tara's ghost guiding her mom to certain answers. Those are both done now, and I thought that those were a little bit problematic. So 
hopefully this last episode, this series finale, it's kind of weird to say it because it's been on for so many years, uh, hopefully it'll stick the landing. Fingers crossed. Uh, let's move on quickly to The Strain, which I know you've not caught up with, uh, but I continue to watch, cause, again, because I have screeners, so I feel obligated to. Uh, this episode, you know, Todd Vanderwerf put up a really fun piece at Vox, and it was about how The Strain keeps taking situations that should easily lead to awesome and instead going uh, underwhelming or boring or, you know, to, to, you could take a left turn to awesome, but instead you have F get arrest, not evade the, the police and have this badass chase scene, but instead get taken in and sit in a room and say the exact same thing he's been saying for four weeks uh, about how the, everything is coming and people just won't listen to him. If they would just listen, then he would solve the world i mean the, the they have the eclipse this week and uh vampires are everywhere infecting people killing people but it's still not a peep you know there's this strange word of attacks getting out but not a single video not a i'm sorry at a certain point i don't believe your one hacker broke the internet for like a week come on guys just there's there's too much um that's sloppy and it continues. It continues to have some of the same problems. Uh, and they just need to start killing people, I think, killing main characters or just letting them be awesome, like Todd says in his article. So I would, I concur, cosign with, and it's, he wrote it with another writer over at Vox. And unfortunately, I don't remember the other writer's name, but uh, cosign with, with that piece. And um, I'm going to still keep watching. And I really hope that they can at least come together for a ridiculous but entertaining finale. That remains to be seen, uh, but there was very little David Bradley in this episode, and that made it hard to really enjoy and dig into this episode. Um, we'll see more next week. I, I'm hoping that it'll turn around and at least because it, it's, it's the 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 Ryan and Ryan, uh, you know, TM trademark uh, expression. Bonkers, awesome. I would love for this show to get bonkers awesome, but it doesn't seem like it's willing to do that, and that's that's frustrating. Let's move on, though, to Outlander, episode two, Castle Liach. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm just going to preface every Outlander conversation with, I don't speak Gaelic, so I'm probably going to pronounce <laughs> stuff incorrectly. Uh, at this point, when I had seen the first two episodes, that, that's you've now seen what I had seen before the season started, when I was saying I had some problems with the lead character because she felt like a Mary Sue to me. She felt like she was always right and was seemed to handle everything with a bit too much calm. I like the performance. I think there's there's depth there, but it just everything she's right all the time and that was fr frustrating to me. Um I haven't seen that complaint anywhere else though. So I want I'm curious what you think about this um and if there cuz a lot of other critics I respect uh and admire see depths in that character that I am not seeing. So I'm curious what you think. And if you can tell me what I'm missing, what I should be looking for, I would be very appreciative because I want to like <laughs> this character more than I do. Um, I don't see a ton of depth. So uh, I've not, I've also not read too much about Outlander recently. So, uh, but yeah, and yeah, I also haven't really noticed that she's right all the time. It's mostly just been Okay. I think um, I've not really had many problems with Outlander. I also 
I'm not particularly excited about it. It's fine. I'm fine mentioning a few things about it week to week. But uh, like you said, the performance is there, but there isn't much meat to it for me yet. Um, I thought that I could use more of the present day as well. I mean, like we got a glimpse of her husband, right? Kind of looking at the car. Uh, mm-hmm. I almost wish that we got a few more scenes of that and also continuing that from episode to episode. Um rather than just her narrating that she's still thinking about him at certain points. But, um, yeah, I, I, the, the getting her dressed scene so that now she's visually transformed into somebody from this time period, I thought that that worked um, rather well. Um, other than that, again, solid so far. It's it's a series that I kind of like sitting back and sinking into because it's an interesting setting. But otherwise, I, I don't notice all that depth that you've said that critics uh, see in her. Well, and like you said, sitting back and just sinking into the world, it's a beautiful world in, into which to sink. It's, it looks lovely. The set design is great. The costuming is great. There's a lot to really enjoy just on an aesthetic level or listening to the music or listening to the speech patterns. I mean, there's there's a lot to enjoy there just on that, that level um, with uh with her with that lead i I mean i would be very surprised if we got hardly anything if we we got more than just a few other moments like we did in this episode with frank because the show seems very entrenched in her uh perspective her point of view and in her her mind and i am absolutely fine with that because there's i can't think of another show on tv that's doing that in the same way maybe mindy project when it's on the air but to have a show that is so very much in its near its female protagonists uh point of view i i would be surprised if that shifts which is a shame because i'm much more interested in frank than i am in a lot of what's going on in the the castle uh jamie does not feel like a real person right now to me because he feels too noble and he just like he is that guy on the cover of the romance novel and i'm sure that more depth will come i am positive but it just Again, and it's a it's a very likable performance. It's only episode two. I'm certain I will I will get more invested as the show continues. He just feels like somebody had a checklist of things of swoon worthy traits. You know, it's like oh, protect his sister from the evil rapist. Check. Oh, but was not successful. Tortured. Check. You know, like it goes down the. He's he's literally scarred, but only on his back, which is normally covered up. So. The face did not get marred. Still gorgeous. <laughs> Check. I mean, there's just so much of that. I'm really hoping to feel like he has more of a personality besides, like, noble, hunky, a bit of an outlaw. So, it may, you know, I'm hoping to get more nuance than maybe what one would immediately expect just by looking at him. I will make a bold prediction and say that that will not happen. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> The last thing I'll mention is that I liked that they, they felt comfortable not using subtitles during a lot of those extended uh, Gaelic scenes. So that was cool. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. A hundred percent. Very happy about that. And uh, yeah, I, I just, everybody, but yes, there are those extended Gaelic scenes, but everybody speaks English when she's around. Apparently they all speak English. Is that, did everybody in Scotland speak English at this time? <laughs> we don't even need to get into that because rain exists and that's the most 
batshit crazy when it comes to accents and languages yeah, but, that it can get. But they never pretended to be anything other. They didn't have extended scenes that were, you know, accurate and then going to, you know, so, and maybe there's, I'm sure the, the, the author of the books uh, has done her research quite a bit. She's a very intelligent, very smart woman. Uh, so it's very possible that everybody in that area was bilingual, but it seems odd. It seems like that seems like the kind of thing that the character should have been like, everybody speaks English. That's really convenient. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that a couple more episodes in, I'll be fully on board. Uh, two episodes in, are you team Frank or are you team Jamie? Can I be team neither? You can be team Claire. Yeah. I think I'll be team Claire for the moment. And uh, that's, that's okay. I'm not, particularly interested in either of those two just right now fair enough we'll see where the rest of the season takes us or i think it's gonna be like a half season eight episodes and then a mini hiatus and then the other second half of the season so we'll see where the next six weeks takes us but for now what wins your week in reality or if you want to combine reality and genre go for us go for it or if you just want to look at genre what what wins for you uh well if we combine it it's so you think you can dance if we do just genre um I'll have a better answer next week because I'll have caught up with Extant and Strain, but True Blood, I think, wins this one. Okay, and I'll give it to The Intruders if it's just the genre, and I'll give it to, I'll give it to So You Think You Can. It's infuriating as it was. Literally, I have to thank Whitney for my TV saying to me, by the way, and you guys can check out her recaps that she does each week with, uh, usually with Elena, uh, but another another blogger, but uh, but I must have talked her ear off for like a solid hour about this. She was like trying to work and I kept pestering her about my thoughts on the season. So thank you, Whitney. Very wonderful to have a sounding board the the, the morning after watching So You Think You Can Dance. But I, I still have to give it to that if we're combining both categories. But now let's take a break and come back with our week in drama. drama we're going to talk a little bit of the, the legends pilot or i should say sean you're going to talk about the legends pilot and we'll both chime in with our thoughts on the nick mr paris shoes the honorable woman the killing call the leftovers cairo rectify until you're blue and masters of sex blackbird this will be interesting to try to keep this to a manageable length because there's a lot to talk about in a lot of these episodes i haven't seen the legends pilot is that true for legends as well sean um you don't need to see the Legends pilot. Let's see. It's Noted. kind of a no kind of a novelty to have Sean Bean on a show in which he probably won't die by the end of the first season. So that's cool. But guess what, Kate? He's a little bit troubled, but he's the best undercover undercover operative that they have. Oh my God, it's crazy. We've never seen that before. Um, <laughs> Never is is he is he dark and gritty, but with a gooey center. He's tortured yes. past. No. He has to get into 
this character that he plays, this American kind of dweeb, and he does it incredibly well. And to see Sean Bean transition from the two characters is quite good. Um, but that character is based off of the real character who has those typical marital family problems, etc. So uh, it's kind of weird that TNT follows more closely the network procedural format rather than doing some of the more interesting things that Cable does with crime dramas. But I suppose we're a bit used to it at this point. Um, but yeah, Legends probably doesn't have too much to recommend it. The pilot has a guest turn from Jelko Ivanek, I'm pronouncing that correctly, who, who does a great role in the antagonist role in this episode. But uh, unless they can kind of do that weekly, kind of how the Blacklist had several good guest turns, there's probably not a good reason to keep coming back. Yeah, that sounds about right. And, I mean, I like I like that cast. I like Tina Majorino. I like uh, I like really that entire cast. And Shelko Vines, like you said, he's always great. But I think I'm going to stay away. Fair enough. There's plenty of other dramas. Uh, let's let's talk about the first, though, of our, our weekend drama, the first that we've both seen, and that's Mr. Parachute's. We got a little bit more focus on, is the character, is it Algernon? What's the character's name? Algernon, yeah. yeah. What did you think? Good. I, I think he's probably the most intriguing character for me right now. A lot of the drama revolves around him, even though Thackeray obviously is the center. Um, but to see him kind of create his own little ward in the basement of what he's been given and to do his own practicing, I think, adds a whole lot of dimension to the Nick overall, which could just have been a vehicle for Clive Owen. Um, but it looks like they really have a sense of who these supporting characters are, I think. Even the other two um, surgeons who are working with Thackeray. And also bringing back um, his mentor in Flashback. I'm glad that that happened because that's a, obviously a really important relationship. And it's good to see that actor. Yeah, Matt Fruer is somebody I, I always enjoy when he pops up, even if I wasn't as, as hot on his uh, the writing for his character on Orphan Black this past season, but uh, or season and a half, I should say, really. Um, yeah, this one was, it, it made me more optimistic after the pilot, because it does expand out the world. Um, I do like the flashbacks we get here, and uh, I am cautiously, I continue to be cautiously optimistic that the storyline will go in more interesting routes than the pilot indicated, maybe. Um, do you think, how long is it going to take before he tries to kick cocaine again or is he not going to because he was trying in, in the pilot but I, it's a good question and I don't really have a great guess for it I would imagine that it has to happen at least one more time in this first season um, and yet that conversation with the nurse like he obviously wants to maintain a certain image uh, when he is around his colleagues so it, it has to be a really careful and grueling process I would imagine Especially with the hospital in transition, it's not like their star doctor can really disappear for a couple months, you know, to go on a health vacation or something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see where, where that goes. I just, and, and again, Clive Owen does such a great job in the role, and he's really uh, very interesting, but it just feels very familiar. So I, I, I appreciate the expanded world. I'm very interested to see this um, 
facility that uh, it seems like Algernon has set up for for uh, African American patients and see how that goes. And there's a lot here to enjoy. But I don't really have anything new to add. I don't think. Shall we move on to our next show? Uh, I just would just want to point out two shots that I thought worked really well. Uh, the opening bit, which alternates between the two characters getting ready and their various or separate um, living conditions, and that's the woman who runs the hospital and also Algernon, and then in the wards um, when we're kind of following Herman as he's opening up the shades. It's all one shot and it continues to where Clive Owen axes the electricity box. Um, and that I thought was a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of directing. But other than that, yeah, kind of on the same level with you right now. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our next show. The, on- the honorable woman, the killing call, uh, not cool. <laughs> the honorable woman, Getting me to get all invested in your shipping and then killing him off. Poor Tobias Menzies. I was watching this episode and I was so glad to see that he was back after having been shot and sidelined in the second episode. Um, I was like, oh, good, because I've been enjoying this actor and I'd like to see him in a different kind of role. They, he usually gets cast as these kind of um, wet blanket, kind of uh, scumbag or snivelly kind of characters. And so at least that's what I'm most familiar with him in. Uh, that kind of a role, so I was really glad to see him be really, really competent, really good at his job, really professional, really intelligent, uh, clearly brave, good at his job, when when your job is being a bodyguard, that means, you know, jumping into the line of fire if you have to, as he does in the pilot, and then she killed him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, because obviously this was a really interesting role for him. Uh, and yet the show hadn't given him a whole lot to do, and what he had been given, I think, was mostly in service of um, reiterating kind of how dangerous secrets are in this series, so, um, and not being able to trust certain people, or, you know, um, so in terms of using him for plot, it was done well, even though we prefer our characters not to be used in that way. But, uh, yeah, early and sad send-off for Tobias Menzies. Uh, the, the secret has to be something more compelling than, Nessa's really the mom, because that's been hugely foreshadowed since the first episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I was mentioning in my trying to be spoiler-free last week. Uh, do what is it just, it's, it can't just be that, right? No, it's got to be something more than that, you would think, because they have a lot of balls up in the air with a lot of different characters, So, and it seems like it's, it's really carefully layered. So there's got to be another element to that, I would imagine, that we'll get over the next two episodes. Um, but that's, like you said, foreshadowed, so it's kind of good to get that out now uh, and then move on to whatever else we're going to with the plot. I have to say I'm very impressed with how they've managed, um, I don't, Rachel, and I don't remember the other character, the, um, the Nessa's brother's mistress, basically, at this point. Uh, Uh, Attica? I don't, yeah, how they've managed those, I was, I'm surprised that I really am invested, especially in Rachel, she's been more, like I said, Tobias Benzies gets cast in this role a lot, but she's been that sort of wet blanket kind of figure, and who is kind of there for us to disagree with. Mm -hmm. But I'm very much invested in her, and I think that's down to the performance. I mean, some of the writing, but I think even more than that, it's the performance. She's a very... uh, She feels very intelligent and very warm, and and so I'm really invested in what's happening in that, in those relationships, in a way that I'm surprised by, only in episode three. 
Interesting. I It wasn't so much in this episode, but I think where I'm most invested, based on the first two episodes, um, is Stephen Ray's character, who plays Hugh, the, the intelligence guy. He, I think the only thing I've seen him in that I can remember is V for Vendetta, but he is wonderful in this role. Um, I know I didn't get to talk about the last episode, but just uh, interviewing that woman um, and everything that he's kind of had his hand in, he's... He's fascinating, and I, I really hope that he gets more because he kind of was on the sidelines in this episode. Yeah, I would be surprised if he doesn't get quite a bit more to do, and quickly. Um, I've, been, I've been good. I've not watched ahead so that I can talk about this stuff on the podcast. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think that it would be easy to just cut everything with him. And so the fact that they keep spending time on him and his ex-wife and uh and his current uh, relationship tells tells me that there's a lot more coming i love how canny he is with what's going on and uh in 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 a very in a a subtle way and in a a dog has been around the block a few times Mm kind of way and so i i i i'm also enjoying that performance yeah the last thing i'll say was it was a really beautiful book ending the episode with uh, the two windmill shots the first of which was especially attractive but uh, really good structure I thought to this episode and I'm also just going to mention how gorgeous the score is I love the score granted I'm biased there's a lot of violin as a violinist I, I, this speaks to me but it's just a, a absolutely gorgeous scoring and I hear there's more to come some really good stuff coming this week for the score so uh really enjoying the honorable woman so far let's move on to the leftovers and cairo and i'll say right now i don't understand do you understand (laughs) the leftovers has just become a thing of experiences that i witness i i know little and i also am disconnected enough that i care little which now that we're is this seven episodes in Mm mm-hmm is a problem, I think. So, again, there are plenty of things that we could say in favor of The Leftovers. I think the acting, in many cases, uh, is among that. But I I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, everything at the end, uh, I, I was really flashing to, and I should say, actually, this is episode eight, and it did just get renewed for season two, so it will be back next year. But um, what we get with and doubt at the end. I, I'm getting a very uh, Will season one of Hannibal uh, sense from the, the you know Garvey the, from the chief, and um, and so I mean who knows where they're going with that? If I, I would I would be surprised if they were actually going the um, the medical route with that. If if it wasn't, if, I feel like this is intentionally supposed to be some sort of mental um, uh, issue or psychological issue for him, but the um, that that's really what it feels like to me. Uh, the conflicting sense of the voices is interesting to me because with the grandfather, it feels like the voices are a positive force, whereas in this episode, it feels like the voices are a very negative and destructive force. I have no clue why she kills herself. I'm sure I'm su- supposed to, and maybe when I watch the next two episodes, I'll pick up on it more, but... Yeah, when he's saying, I don't understand you. No, I don't. I was watching going, I'm with you. I don't understand you either. It's a fabulous performance from Ann Dowd. Very, uh, really appreciated getting to see her 
explore the role, though they, they had her talk a lot in this role for a non-speaking role. I was a little disappointed in that. But um, it's been wonderful over the course of the season, and I'm going to miss her, I think, in the next couple episodes here as we get to the finale. Uh, I also like that this episode and the past several have... We have not spent time with uh, uh, with Magic Wayne and Christine and the son. The the finale is called The Prodigal Son Returns, so I am I would be surprised if that held true for the last two episodes. But um, I, I am much more interested in this corner of the world and the the Nora and Garvey relationship and. Uh, the little Garvey and her friends, the Amy relationship, those are where I'm most invested. So when these last couple episodes have spent more time with those characters, it, the show has worked for me better. But yeah, it's it's hard. I can't... People ask, like, what, tell me about The Leftovers. Tell me, you know, what is, it, is it a good show? Would I like it? And I just, I can't tell. Yeah, what can you say to that? I don't know. Um, yeah, and Ad's presence, I think, uh, will be missed because she's been such a solid one on the show, but you say that you don't understand why she kills herself. Do you care about the character? I mean... Well, I, I care about what she represents to the show, and um, I care about her function in the show. Uh, I care about her as the source of malevolence, especially when she says that what was the name of the woman who was stoned? Uh, Gladys? Yeah, when she says she didn't mind, but we saw her begging for them to stop in that episode, mm -hmm. so we know that in the end she did. Um, you know, so there, I care about that stuff. Uh, I'm interested in her. What I would be interested to know what her backstory was to some extent. I don't need to know that, though. Um, and that's sort of that's sort of where I where I am with it. I don't find I find the guilty remnant to be off putting, and certainly if you lived in that town, it would be really upsetting to have them following you around all the time. Note how quickly Liv Tyler freaks out about being followed and researched when she's been carrying around files of research the whole time, uh, which felt a bit precious for that character. I hope she leaves the remnant soon because if she can't handle that, she shouldn't be in the remnant. But I haven't found them to be as this really oppressive force, this really malignant force, the way that I think I'm supposed to be finding them. Yeah. I yeah, I find myself not caring that much, even now that Jill is a part of it, apparently, and whatever. You know, Garvey found all of his white shirts and whatever, and... Do you think Jill's a part of it, or is she just visiting her mom? I think it seems like she's just given up so much now that she's going to at least attempt to be there, but who's who's to say? Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were saying he found the shirt. No, no, no. Uh, I I need yeah. him. To, I need him to apologize to that dry cleaner and give him a bunch <laughs> of guy. money. Yeah. And because that is that there, Sonia Soraya was is reviewing this for the AV Club, and she talked about in that episode that was just an episode that really she had a lot of problems with because of the character's treatment of this dry cleaner, uh, and, and the fact that the show didn't care to make him a character outside of that, those few moments at all, or to have there be any, you know, ramifications for Garvey about all these behaviors he's having. I don't know how he could possibly still have his job at the end of the season with everything he's done. Um, so I need him to make some amends. Yeah. It, this show, I don't think is too interested in that, which 
is probably unfortunate for some viewers, but again, this is all like overwhelming to some degree. A lot of these parallels that they're trying to draw between cutting the dog loose and then uh, Garvey deciding to cut Patty loose, and I don't, I don't know, and so I'm starting not to care. Fair enough. Uh, we'll talk. You know, we'll check in and see if the last two episodes bring things together at all. But for now, let's move on to Rectify, which had its penultimate episode until you're blue. And we, uh, we, we, we had some, some, a few things happened this <laughs> what? week. Just Nothing a couple. Happened. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, uh, how about that last shot? Yeah. Also, how about Teddy and Tawny's conversation in the bedroom with the, the handheld camera, which was shaking the whole time? God, that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and painful. But yes, definitely yeah, beautiful. Ridiculously painful and difficult to watch. Um, I don't. I don't even know where to begin. Maybe we should begin. Rectify got renewed for a third season Woo-hoo! last night, so that's happening. Um, to what extent do you think they're going to follow through with uh, Daniel and Tanya? Because I'm. I'm not so sure that Daniel, especially being very wary of the fact that his original crime um, had to do with him being under the influence. I don't think that he would take advantage of her in any way. I think it's very important that the door was open at the yeah. end. The the door was not closed uh, to that room, uh, and that, I think, is significant. So I would not be surprised if he slept there, but I don't think that he there will be any hanky-panky. <laughs> yeah. Which is good, because it's all messy, and Teddy Jr., in many ways, it's just absolute scum in this episode, and yet somehow Ray McKinnon has done a decent enough job for me to be able to understand his perspective, uh, regardless of if I agree or sympathize with it or not. So at the same time, like, just give both of them freaking Emmy Awards for that scene because uh, Clint Clawford was also fantastic alongside Adelaide Clemens, just him kind of looking away staring up and quivering and yeah it was it was really really good well and i think what this season has done an excellent job of is reminding the viewers that as much of a dick as as he may be he's also an abuse victim because he he got choked out and woke up with his pants off he has no idea what happened to him that if that were a woman that that had happened to the show would have it would have been on the forefront of everyone's mind but because he, because he's a man, and because of the way that sexual abuse of men is not really discussed uh, in in America very very frequently, it's still a very much a taboo topic in a lot of areas. Uh, that is not on the forefront of people's mind. So his his denial and his trauma from that is not something that necessarily viewers are thinking about when they walk watch him lash out towards Tawny, who's, who has said that she had feelings for this man who assaulted him. Uh, and so we don't know what happened. We know what we think happened. I, I, I don't think anything. I think he poured coffee grounds and uh, pulled his pants down and left. But we don't know. Um, and so it's. I, I, th- I think that is a really significant element of what's going on with Teddy right now. Uh, so and especially the, so the way that the season has brought that back up and reinforced it with you know by letting other people know and uh really darkening daniel as well i think has been 
for me at least, has been very influential in how I see that scene with Tawny and Ted Jr. Yeah. Um, elsewhere in the episode, I think that the distinctions between Mrs. Holden's and Amantha's perspectives uh, were drawn very well, and I'm glad that they finally had a conversation in which Amantha sat her down and asked her to, to really speak what was on her mind and to actually get that. So that was another aspect that worked. It's it's all difficult because I don't know really where I stand on the issue of the plea deal because there's certainly a bit of righteousness that Amantha holds that I would sympathize with. Um, and yet it also makes sense that at the end of the day, being with the family is incredibly important, uh, especially for the healing process. So um, a lot of answers that need to be addressed I think somewhat in the finale the plea deal f feels very it feels like a construct to me it feels like something out of Shakespeare you are banished um, <laughs> so that was kind of distracting for me um, however when I look at his family it's important for him to be around uh, Amantha sometimes not always that's a strong flavor um, and his mother and then probably also Tawny but he does not have a positive relationship with Teddy Jr doesn't need to be around him. It would be good probably for him to be around uh, his, his mother's new husband because that seems like he, that's a positive force. But Amantha can just move. And honestly, you put this behind you, as long as he doesn't have to say that he did what, what that he did kill and assault this girl, if he doesn't believe that he did, obviously he doesn't have his memories of that night. If he doesn't have to say that he did something that he doesn't, you know, he isn't willing to say that he did, I don't know how you don't jump at that. Because then you, it's behind you, you are done, you don't, there's no worry that you're going to have to get sent back to jail. You move to a new place, you start your life over. I just, that just seems like an obvious choice to me. Amantha can come with. She isn't, she has nothing holding her. Where, you know, her boyfriend's jetting around the, the country doing different cases. So, I mean, it's just his mother, basically. Yeah, and, I mean, that's why I think it's so effective, is because to you it is obvious, and I think that it just comes down to differences in personality that would dictate kind of where one would land there. Um, uh, I, I think I am in agreement with you as well, but um, the other options, I think, certainly make sense. Um, but, yeah, it was good to see Ted Sr. go up to the senator and call him a vulture. That was another strong instance. I think more than anybody else, the senator has proven himself to be probably the most despicable person on this show. Well, and they, they haven't done a good job exploring that character. Every mm -hmm. other character feels explored and lived in the sheriff, the various people that we've spent time with, but that character is one-dimensional, and, um, and it would be nice to have a stronger sense of him. Does he actually believe this? Does he actually, want, in his heart of heart, believe that Daniel is guilty or is it completely because he made his career on this and I don't have a strong enough sense of it being like of what percentage it is so when he says that he believes it I don't believe him because I he has not been shown to be a trustworthy individual at all um, so that's I think the trouble I'm having with that character on the whole though I mean they, this season has done such a wonderful job of fleshing out the world and making the the periphery characters feel more involved and uh, more lived in. Uh, in the last little detail that I would mention, um, that 
first song that comes on the radio when Tani goes to the hotel is by Keaton Henson, whose music we'll recognize, uh, which is used pretty heavily in In the Flesh. So that was great because there's actually quite a few similarities between those two series. Nice. Well, let's move on to our final show this week, and that's Masters of Sex, Blackbird. And uh, I knew what was coming for this one because being the TV editor at Sound of Sight, occasionally I have to edit reviews for episodes I haven't watched yet. And so I was spoiled on what would happen, but that did not change how powerful and at times uh, frustrating elements of this episode were. What, what did you think? I, I don't even know what to say about season two of Masters of Sex anymore. You look at Libby and Betty and uh, Lillian and all three of these characters could be main characters in their own shows. Um, I, I guess let's start with Betty because like she's been so outstanding this season. Brutal. And I really like the use of the Sarah Silverman character. Um, but it's such a hard relationship to see disintegrate on, on many sides. Uh, her with the husband. Um, because you feel bad for the guy. Because he's gone all in and she's done her damnness to like do what she can with that relationship. And yet... He's just unfortunately finding out all of the secrets that she's kept, and we can't really fault her for that. And it's it's awful and beautiful, and I love every minute of this. Yeah, it was it was really good that those scenes, like you say, they've made us really care about the Pretzel King of of where are they of, of uh, Missouri or whatever the region is. They've they've made us care about him. He was a joke of a character when he was introduced, but his support of her, his uh, lack of regard for her, her past, um, his, uh, you know, his acceptance of, of her, even when he finds out she's been lying to him, because I don't think he, if, if she doesn't lie to him, I don't think that they have as much of a problem. And I think that at least he's willing to try and to see what they can do to build a life together. But she keeps lying to him. And as much as we love Betty and as difficult a situation as she is in, you can't fault him for being fed up with now a series, like months of lies. Months of lies about the, the fertility followed by a new series of lies about Helen. It's it's rough. And strangely enough, not even close to the roughest thing in this episode. Do we want to do... Uh, should we get, uh, should we get uh, Coral... Out of the way. Yeah, let's let's save Lillian for last. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss Coral. I'm gonna miss her screwing with Libby, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna miss all of the racial politics, and the show. Hopefully, they aren't just gone. But with the the doctors leaving Buell Green or being fired from Buell Green in this episode, and with um, uh, Coral out of the picture as well. Who knows if they're going to touch back in on that conflict. I, I really hope that they do, though. It seems like, um, and I forget the character and the actor's name, the one who runs Courtney uh, B. Vance. the hospital. Courtney B. Vance's character uh, has been acting as such a important force for Bill and seems to have thoughts and opinions that resonate with him. Um, I, I would imagine that he'll come back in some way. Um, because it's almost like a mentorship in a way, which is strange. But you're right that kind of all of that racial politics stuff is 
pretty much removed entirely in this episode, which is unfortunate. Um, but you know, there's so many things going on here, and they—if that's the end of the Coral story, what a what a weirdly wonderful story it was, and to see Libby put through all of that, mm-hmm. and you know, put herself through that, and you know, have to confront some stuff about herself and how unhappy she is in her marriage, as much as she may not be, you know, wanting to to admit that, but. This, this isn't a problem if she isn't attracted to Robert, but she clearly is, and she's clearly unfulfilled in the in the in the marriage because Bill's checked out. So uh, I would be very surprised if we saw these issues with her go away with Coral. Yeah, no, because also in the first season, right? She had a was it a repairman who ended up teaching her dance. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's something that they seem to be focusing on with Libby, which is good, um, because it's drawn, I think, some interesting stories out so far. Yeah, her loneliness and her need for connection, and now this is this is not the first time that she's felt drawn to a uh, responsible and polite and of a certain height build African-American man uh, that she's run into. So we'll see if there's anything else that comes from it. So, Julian Nicholson. Can't put it off any longer, can we? Uh, Wow. She's been tremendous all year. She was tremendous last season. She was one of the most underappreciated elements of the show last season. She was tremendous on The Red Road. And all I can hope is that people keep casting her and stuff. Because she's really good and has been for a long time. Um, It was hard to say goodbye, but I really like that Ginny respected her wishes in the end. Yeah. Firstly, the the conversation in the bedroom between Bill and Virginia in which she breaks down and admits that she really is, that Lillian is a friend that she really values. And then obviously everything that happens with that at the end. And like you said, respecting the wishes. And then what do you do? You just get into bed and kind of grieve with her. And damn, that was such a good performance in Masters of Sex up until this point. And... I don't know how you fill that void. Certainly this, this is something that's going to affect Virginia for the entirety of this show. Like, that's a huge thing to let somebody get around the wall, as she says, and then to lose that person in that way. Um, it's it's really haunting. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Masters of Sex is having a tremendous second season, sophomore season, and... Uh, they they haven't been able to have uh, Allison Janion or Bo, uh, Bo Bridges, but they've done a wonderful job filling those gaps in the show with these other peripheral characters. So I look forward to what's going to come in, for the rest of the season. Uh, it's going to be hard to say goodbye to Lillian, but hopefully there will be plenty more Julian Nicholson in our TV lives in the not-too-distant future. Any final thoughts about uh, this episode? Yeah, I think we got the, the big ones, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this season plays out. Yeah. Well, what wins your week in drama? <sighs> really good at Rectify episode, really good Masters of Sex episode. I think i got to give it to Masters of Sex, though. I think i got to give it to Rectify. We'll split there, but I, Masters of Sex was tremendous as well, and it's it's really hard to, to pick between the two of them. Trem- two tremendous sophomore seasons. I mean, they both had great freshman seasons, both had great sophomore seasons, or at least to this point, and uh, Masters of Sex still hasn't been renewed for season three, has it? Uh, Not that I know of, no. 
Get on that, HBO. <laughs> no, get on that Showtime. I apologize. Because uh, I need another season of this show. But uh, anyway. Absolutely. Uh, a few show notes before we go to our Comic-Con Hannibal Press Room. You can find a post-up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us an, a, a, a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on Site TV and at the Televerse. We have an M4A chapter feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed up in iTunes where you can leave us a rating or review and let us know what you think of the show. You can also... Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter, where I am at the Televerse, and you are? At Sean Coletti. Sean, what is our question of the week? Uh, well, you mentioned during the Top Chef discussion that uh, if there's any chefs out there to please let us know. I guess I'm just kind of interested what the professions of our listeners are. What does everybody do? Yeah, that's a good, yeah. I want, I want to know, too. Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> well, I am a violinist and a writer. Sean, you are? I am a reading and writing tutor at a community college. And uh, yeah, let us let us know. That's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, now we'll take a break, listen to a little bit of music, and come back with the the press rooms from from Comic Con. Again, audio quality. There's a lot of background noise, but you'll get to hear brief conversations with Stephen Lightfoot, uh, Brian Fuller, uh, Martha De Laurentiis, David Slade, uh, Rollo Sparza. Uh, Aaron Abrams, Scott Thompson, Caroline Davana, uh, and uh, it was it was a, a lot of fun talking to everybody. So, uh, also at the table, I do not know unfortunately all the other uh, press who were at my table, but uh, friends of the show, uh, Kyle from No Reruns and Jason the TVaholic were at my table as well as several other lovely people. And was if you, if any of you are listening, it was lovely sharing the table with you. But uh, now let's take a break and come back with that after this. This week, instead of the DVD shelf, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you'll be hearing the audio from the Comic-Con press room for Hannibal. I got to speak with a number of different cast members and creatives associated with the show. It was really a really fun hour or so, uh, and hopefully you guys will enjoy uh, the conversations. The other press at the table that I, I unfortunately didn't get everyone's name, but there, there are a handful of other people. They're all really great. And, uh, if any of them are listening, let me know and I'll include your name in the post for this episode. Uh, but of course, Jason, the TV holic and Kyle from no reruns were two of the, two of the people at the, t at the press table. First up, we have our conversation with Steve Lightfoot, who's one of the executive producers on Hannibal, as well as one of the writers. He's written 11 episodes over the course of two seasons where has a credit on, on these episodes. Um, but yeah, he's very involved in the process, and so we spoke with him first. C congratulations on what has been was a fantastic season for the show, second season for the show. Um, there's been such exploration of, of themes of violence and its effect in the first season, and in the second season, this extra uh, deep exploration of uh, masculinity, depictions of various forms of masculinity, masculinity. Are there particular themes you guys are looking to explore in season three, focusing on, or will it just further explore these ones that have already been established? I think because of the nature of the show, in terms of the Will and Hannibal race, we're always going to be, and, and it's a horror show, I think we're always going to be exploring those in a version of them. I mean, what we want to keep doing is evolving them. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting 
in this season is I think also this, this both Hannibal and Will, you know, we're looking at loss and grief in a way. I mean, in a way, what happened at the end of season three, there was a breakup of sorts. I mean, I, I, you know, there's lots of conversation about is, is their relationship a romantic one? Is it for me personally? It's not, but I think it's a it's an incredibly deep male friendship that you know those lifelong buddy relationships can be can be stronger than romantic ones, and I think that got broken. So I think they're both also dealing with the loss of each other and grieving that and working out how to fill you know how to fill that gap. So many Patinkin said that he was leaving criminal minds because it was destructive to his mind and, and soul and personality because of all the violence going on in there. How do you feel about this? Um, I mean, I think... You know, obviously I can't speak to him and, and, and anyway that show, I mean I think that's a very different show to ours and, and I don't know what his experience on it was. I mean certainly I feel like we we always try to be very real about the effects of violence in the show and the way we write the show and, and you know and you go to some dark places because in many ways the show is heightened and not quite real and there's a, there's a sort of you know a fantastic element you know with, with our tableaus and our murder scenes. Um, and the psychology is heightened. You know, we often talk about the show is quite purple. You know, it's, it's heightened. But you, we always try and make the emotional truths of it very real and grounded. And definitely, I think we've always been very careful that we see that toll on the characters. You know, I mean, I certainly, I mean, he's obviously talking about it on himself. But I mean, I certainly think for us as dramatists, there's a massive onus to show how it affects people who work in those fields, you know, I mean, Will, Jack, all these guys, none of them are just walking home and, you know, ordering pizza. So, but you aren't having nightmares? No, you know, I kind of, I'm, I get to leave it at work, I mean, I think often as a writer, I mean, I feel like when we're writing it, I'm certainly affected by what I'm thinking about, and you, you go to a place where you're having to work on how the hell would I feel if I did that or was seeing that, and, you know, you go to places from your own life when you've been pretty low to, to find it but also I think part of writing is you know that's what you do and, and actually in many ways that's how you deal with those feelings and get them out I mean I thought in some ways it's pretty cathartic I think writing that stuff. Generally speaking um, men use violence as a way to deny intimacy right they're having a very warm moment and they realize it and they both go oh you know what I mean um, this show, violence is actually the gateway to intimacy. Was that an intentional reversal? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I didn't work. I came on halfway through season uh, through halfway through season one, so I don't know. I can't talk to Brian in, in, in the very beginning of it. I mean, I think more. I guess for me, it's almost a result of it's a show about violence and it's a show about intimacy because I think a lot of shows about violence aren't intimate, you know, and the violence is the sort of action. Um, and I feel like, for us, the violence is sort of, it's the crucible that starts the, the discussion between those two men, you know, in those scenes certainly where they would discuss the case and Will would bring it back, and actually that would become the, the basis for the real conversation, which is between those two men. So I think certainly what you describe is a result. I don't know if we've, we ever said, oh, that's what the show's about. You know, I think in the end it was a show about these two men and this incredibly twisted, multi-layered male friendship. But I also think, you know, Will and Hannibal never go to that, the place you described. They never punch each other on the shoulder and pull away. They're actually both incredibly articulate about their feelings. So, so I think... Um, if they're both telling the truth. 
Indeed. Which. Yeah. 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 Well, we, we sort of see, you know, Hannibal very rarely lies. You know, he almost uses the truth as his weapon more than anything. You know, and for us, you know, when he was saying, well, look, I'm just being a good therapist. I'm just being a good... I just want you to be the best version of yourself. That's absolutely the truth. It's just the best version of yourself is a guy like me. You know, and that's, that's, that's where his, you know, his... his Moral compass is a little skewed, you know, it's not exactly pointing at all, so... You brought Dr. Chinton back to life, so that means that you're getting closer to the novels? Um, I think uh, Brian uh, coined it best, I'm going to use his phrase, you know, he said we're sort of Thomas Harris mashup DJs. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we've always been very um, faithful to the spirit of the novels anyway. I mean, we're... we're, all, we're both of us are huge Thomas Harris fans, and you know, and what's interesting is that an awful lot of lines in the script and things that are in there are actually, you know, we take they're taken from the books. We're very, um, they're very much the Bible for us. But I also think, you know, after after the novels and the movies, no one wants to see things done the same way. So we've always mixed it up. So, for instance, the way that in Red Dragon it is described that Will Graham caught Hannibal by a wound man, we gave that to Miriam last. So we said to the fans, you know, we want to give you that moment, but it won't be Will. Because otherwise they just know what's coming. So I certainly think, and again with the back half of season two, we sort of did Hannibal, we did Mason Berger and the Pigs, but we said it before the incident where Hannibal took his face. You know, that was the catalyst. So I think we'll, we will keep sort of mashing it up like that. I mean, Chilton was just a great character and we wanted to sort of tease that, you know, he might be gone. But actually, uh, you know, we, we want to keep him around because we want... Hannibal to end up under his care and, and have all the fun of that, you know. Um, but, you know, we will definitely get into the Red Dragon story this season uh, and we will do Francis Dollarhide. We haven't started storylining it, so, so how we mash that up, I don't yet know, but we will uh, we'll definitely do Red Dragon this season, which I'm super excited about. Next up, we spoke with Brian Fuller, of course, the creator, executive producer, head writer, uh, showrunner of, of Hannibal. And uh, I kicked things off immediately by asking about the stag. <laughs> and he, this is our design listeners will know that the stag has been a stumbling block uh, for, for Sean and myself as we go back through season one uh, and even season two. Apparently, it's not as complicated as I was making it out to be. So hopefully you guys will enjoy having an answer to that. I know that I do. Hello. It seems like so many familiar faces. Yes. I'm, I have a weekly Hannibal podcast. We get super in-depth. It's so much fun. But there's one element we've spent more time trying to discern, and we have no freaking clue, and that's the stack. Okay. Sometimes it seems like a positive supporting force. Sometimes it seems supremely negative or oppressive. I mean, Hannibal kills Tobias with the stack. Help. <laughs> well, the stag is really representative of Will's first exposure to Hannibal Lecter. Because he saw uh, in that field with Cassie Boyle impaled on the severed stag head. In his mind, the psychology of that is essentially he's seeing the stag with the ravens picking at the corpse. Everything gets blended in his psychology and comes up with this subconscious image of the stag. And so when we got to the finale of season two and, you know, he shoots the stag... And then we see the stag die as he's lying there dying. And that was really representative of the relationship that Will had with Hannibal up to that point from the very beginning of that stag manifestation to shooting it and watching it die. Kind of represents 
their relationship at that point. So it's it's really symbolic of the Hannibal Will relationship as a whole. So then should we not expect to see the stag recur as, as much in season three? Not as much. Not as, we're going to see the stag man, uh -huh. the Wendigo. Um, but the, the stag, it feels like... Um, we're looking for what our next kind of psychological symbol is because if that was about their relationship in season one and season two and he watched it die, it feels like uh, it should die and be born again to something else. The post credit scene was uh, similar to the finale of the Hannibal novel when Dr. Uh, elopes with Harry Starling. Yes, yes. But instead of Buenos Aires, he goes to Europe. Right, right. So are you going that way? Well, you know, we... I, I mean, I would love to be able to get the rights to the Clary Sterling character and tell the story with the ending in the book. You know, because I think there is a... Uh, a sex appeal to Mads Mikkelsen, and particularly if he brainwashes Clarice in a way that, that we kind of set up with what he did with Miriam Lass, and um, that that would be a possibility. But, but we really wanted for that uh, relationship with Bedelia and Hannibal to be one that is more unique. Um, we didn't want to do, we wanted to save that Clarice dynamic in the hopes of getting Clarice. So the dynamic between Bedelia and Hannibal is, is a, a much different one that is, the first episode of season three is all about that. In a really cool way. You said in the panel that the, the next season is going to jump ahead a whole year. Right. Which characters do you think have had the biggest all of them, really, because you know, for us going into a season three, where you know, after you write two seasons of a character, and you're like, okay, this character has to come at a, a different point of view because I can't sit down and write the same scene. So the exciting thing for us is that everybody is different. Everybody has changed from that night, and. Uh, we, 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 I'm trying to like not give too much away, um, but the exciting thing is everybody is different, and everybody's approach to life and Hannibal is different, and I can't wait for you guys to see some of the, the stuff that characters that you assumed were one way are going to be completely different because they've we're excited. The first season of Hannibal was incredibly lean, like the leanest show I've ever seen. Um, there was not a wasted moment, um, and not and nothing was given any more time than it absolutely needed to have to make the point. And the second season was a lot like slower and a little more sensual. And I'm wondering, is that the direction that it's going to go in um, in the future? Or well, I think every season has its own flavor. So the first season. You know, there's like I look at the first season, and there's some episodes where I was like, okay, that, that, that felt like there was like we could have made that leaner, but that's coming from the end. Seriously, <laughs> and we were all hanging on by our fingernails trying to you know figure out everything that's happening. Oh, that's so. that's good because it's hard to tell like when you're inside right. what's working, what's outside. Um, but the third season, it's really it's really about the first season being um, this kind of seduction and victimization of Will Graham, and then the second season was about Will Graham finding his power and the third season is what does he do with that power when he has it in the context of what he's experienced being gutted and left for dead and seeing friends all around him dying and bleeding 
So that changes him in a big way and changes the tone of the show because we're not going to be doing for the first half of the season the crime procedural. So we won't have like a murderer of the week coming in and doing a certain death tableau. It's it's, it's this hunt story between Will and Hannibal, but every episode is like a movie. So the the first episode is the talented Mr. Ripley, and the second episode is Don't Look Now, and the third episode is Death and Maiden, and the fourth episode is Kill Bill. So there's there's like we're, we're looking at it in a different way than we looked at the previous two seasons, not as any kind of like uh, strategy as much as it has to grow organically from everything that we've laid down, and if we don't have those events have impact and change people's direction and perspectives, then we're not doing our jobs kind of telling the story about what people that just exist. You guys, you gotta take it to the next table. Oh, I gotta ask Melanie, I gotta answer Melanie's question. So many Patinkin said that criminal minds was destructive to his soul and he always seems so happy, so isn't it getting angry to you at all? Well, you know, in the first season, it was very depressing. I struggled with depression quite a bit in the first season because I was writing a character who was losing his mind alone in Canada away from the writing staff and production and my family for seven months and I felt alone and isolated and it actually helped me feel and understand Will but it was very it's, it's about as depressed as I've ever been in my life in the first season and then when I got through it and sort of felt like okay I needed to go through that for my artistic experience to better understand this character and the second season was, was so much easier because I, I I had to go through that darkness to understand the character to then be able to get out of it and it was very much part of the creative process but it was it was very challenging the first season I was, I was very depressed and and the second season was better, and the third season is even more fun in a way for us because it's 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 more of a, a soap opera, and it's taking all of these characters from the books that I love and want to see, like Lady Murasaki and, and Patsy and Cordell and Francis Dollarhide, and being able to tell a story that we haven't yet told. Like I can't wait to get to Red Dragon. And, you know, a lot of people were saying, like, why do Red Dragon? Like, what does it mean in this new context? And, and for me, Red Dragon, for Will Graham, I didn't understand this app until getting through the first two seasons, was Francis Dollarhide for Will Graham is a Hannibal Lecter that he might be able to save because he knows he's trying to stop. And that was sort of the beautiful thing in the book that I didn't see in any of the movies. And I feel like, oh, we can tell a really interesting story from that perspective because it hasn't been tapped into in a great way. So that's thrilling for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you all again. Wonderful to see you. Thank you. Next up, we spoke with Martha De Laurentiis and David Slade. They came to the table together. Uh, Martha De Laurentiis is, of course, one of the producers of, of Hannibal, the executive producers of the series. Her her company, Galmont, secured the international uh, cooperation and co-production deals that have kept the show on the air. Uh, so she's very, uh, very... A significant part of the show's success and continued renewal at uh, at NBC. And then, of course, David Slade is one of the executive producers of Hannibal, as well as the director of the pilot of the uh, the uh, the season two finale and several other episodes in between. I believe it's season one, episode one, episode three, uh, and, and then the season one finale, and then 
Konomono and Mizumono from uh, from season two as well. So a very significant creative force on on the series. Well, thank you for whatever amazing magic Gallant's been able to work to get, keep the show coming back. Because every year I'm nervous. So it's really? because of the ratings, and not enough people are watching. I know. I wish we didn't have those. But now they're counting the Nielsen Twitter ratings. Nice. So that's why the social network has just been our, our flag, you know, and, 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 and it grows exponentially. And now we have NBC behind it, so now they're really, you know, and you need that. You need that machine because it is on NBC, so they have to take ownership. They do. <laughs> Bob Greenblatt, spend money in advertising for Hamilton. <laughs> well, that finale was, uh, I think, one of the best uh, finales of television I've seen. I've seen way too much. Um, was were there particular uh, challenges with, given the epic nature of it? it it's absolutely engrossing. Were there particular challenges in keeping it the, the time, or what were, what were the elements oh, yeah. of? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, it's obvious, but the last scene, the last scene in the kitchen, we were two nights shooting that. Remember? And remember, Martha came to me at one point, and, and there was so much blood everywhere. I was like, more blood, more blood, Let's get more blood. We were gonna run out of blood, and we were, we were gonna run out of blood, so we had to get more blood. Remember, at one point you said that. So you will be able to show this. Is it, I was like, oh, we have it in other clothes, so it'll be fine. We didn't, it, we did not have it in the close-ups at all. We did, and it's part of the way the show is, is I think that the instincts that we have, certainly that Brian has, and hopefully that I have as a director, is, is, is to be respectful. We do horror, but we do visceral, not viscous. You know, we don't, it's not about grossing people out. It's about hitting people emotionally. And particularly that scene, uh, it was a very emotional to shoot. It was even more emotional to watch back afterwards, and it was, we actually, we had a cut at one point that I thought was too emotional, actually. We, we kind of trimmed it a little bit. Um, it was cathartic. It was, um, and, those, and, and, and a testament to our actors, too, when we're doing that scene, and I said it on the panel, um, you know, the close-ups of Hugh when he's on the floor and he's been cut, you couldn't just do, just couldn't put it on the floor and shoot those. Mads and Hugh went to the embrace, they did all of the dialogue so that they were in exactly the right emotional place by the time, and the camera was waiting, I would wait for them off screen to go through all of that, and then they would fall, and then we would begin this job we were doing. And, you know, it, it was, it was, it was hard. I, I'm kind of a method director, I, I do kind of get really tense on set and I watch and I... And there was something very rewarding uh, in, on that last day as well. There were two things, two, two little performance notes uh, that Mads and I discussed that I, I thought came across beautifully. And one was his delivery of In the Pantry uh, to, to, to Carolina's character, Alana Bloom. You know, where is he? Where is he? And we, you know, we knew that this is going to destroy their relationship. It's kind of done now. So do what you can with it. Have it. Enjoy that moment because there's no other way it can be done. And he whispered it so beautifully. And then the other one to me was, you know, just talking with Mads about Hannibal never really shows his emotions. It's not part of his character. But this guy hurt him so much. But there's a moment, a couple of moments in that scene as well, where where he's very honest with his emotions, and I was really proud of that. 
It was really cathartic. Yeah. <laughs> I still get a little lump in my throat. Yeah. Yeah. So what does the network think about you giving away so much stuff before every season? Because Brian's always telling us, well, in this episode, this is going to happen, and then there's this. It always changes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the thing, if, when it doesn't change, the way it ends up coming out, because you know Brian's told, told me the entire office, he's like, hey, I know it's going to be so much more than that, and, and, and I feel I'm happy knowing, because um, it always is much more, much, much more. And you want to see the way the craft of suspense and the thrill and the psychological dramas unfolding, and you want to see our actors do it. Yeah. Mm. So you may know it may be an interview, you may know this will happen, but you want to see, you want to live it, you want to live it with them, because they they bring that to to well, the show. Look to a different shows like Game of Thrones or some characters, you have interviews and they don't give away anything. They can't even answer any questions. Right. So but it, it, it is, you know, it, it's just gonna it goes through a filter. You know, it goes. There's okay. Well, Hannibal's gonna do this. Well, no, Matt Mickelson is playing Hannibal, which means that it's gonna be unpredictable. Yes. Or you know, well, Michael Pitt playing Mason Virgin just blew everybody away. You know, with what he was doing, and so you know. I mean, that. You know, well, plus, we're going back to the literature, so, yeah. you know, obviously, and you know what happens. You know, you know what we're going to go into. So and obviously, certain things have to happen. Certain, you know, set pieces have to. And what gets us excited so much is making our way into Red Dragon and telling the tale that I'm not made not once, not twice, but it's made a third time. But it will be, you know, it'll be just, you know, just that that great. What do you call it? A mashup DJ? Mashup. Yeah, mashup. well, mashup is good. Yeah. Well, and, and then telling in his way the story of the the pitiful character of Francis Dollarhide, who wanted to to save some of his humanity, that really was trying to not become. Yeah, Francis Dollarhide never really was never really explored fully in the book and yeah. in, in the films. I mean, yeah. in the books, are, there's huge, huge areas of Dollarhide to be explored. As there was with Will Graham. I mean, Will Graham, you know, has been a, I think was always cast as the as an archetypal hero to some degree with flaws. But to have ten hours rather than two hours, it's been great just to pull that character. Out. So there you go. Yeah. So, so what's your version of Do uh, Francis Dollarhide? Is more like a cold-blooded killer like Tom Noonan, or more like a sympathetic character like Ray Fiennes? I, I think somebody even so, I would say more sympathetic as well, because again, he wants, he really wants to fight it, and we'll spend time with that, you know, but you just, there's nothing about Brian that is predictable, he doesn't want to have what's done before, or what you would expect, so just, just hearing that, we want to see what will he come up with. Have we got him yet? We're working on it. We've got great characters. We get great guest guest star roles. One of the striking things about the show is the just the, the beautiful aesthetic quality of the gore. Um, and how is it? How is it? How do you deal with that challenge over and over and over to show something that is so terrible and horrific and make it so gorgeous you almost forget what you're looking at? Um, I think what I would say is that Brian has a very operatic sensibility, so when he describes and writes on the page something, it, it, I see the, we see the opera of it and the performance of it, and my job is to, as a director, when it's my episode, is to ground that and contain somehow and keep everything about the flavor of, of Brian's huge operatic strokes 
but make it something that you believe. We don't deal with the supernatural. We don't deal, we deal with, the, with the psyche. We deal with the real world, and it all has to stand on the real world. So, you know... Having said that, in the writer's room, they spent hours just discussing purple cases. So they'll throw all these, you know, what, what could it be? Give me scenes, give me tableaus. And, and then deconstruct from there how those tableaus or the, or the you know, case of the week kind of, you know, will have a symmetry with what's going on with Will and Hannibal. So that the themes are always, and, and that's also the elegance that also comes in with the tableaus. As a director, are you thinking about filming 4K? And what's, what's ah. for blood? I'm about to do something in 4K, but um, that's, I don't know whether, we're, I don't think we're this season. Okay. Are we 4K this season, Marco? I don't know, we don't know yet. We don't know. Would you like it to be? Yes. Really? Everybody would like it to be. Really? But isn't it lost on the way people are watching it? I mean, they watch it on their computers. Isn't that lost? Isn't that a process of... We should probably have no film on television. I know. I know. It was lost on that. But then you had pop, 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 pop. Now, something really... I always think it's you have to keep the standards going. I'm sorry, we're no. pretty good. We're taking the conversation somewhere else. So thank you for being so generous. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, so thank you. Bye-bye. We had the opportunity to speak with a number of actors as well as creatives associated with Hannibal. And first up is Raul Esparza, who, of course, was Dr. Chilton. And uh, it was announced at Comic-Con that he will be uh, back on the show in season three at some point. And uh, so it was a lot of fun to speak with him. We reference... Uh, a moment from the Hannibal panel, the Comic-Con panel, which should be available. I think a lot of those panels have made their way to YouTube, if you're curious. But one of the fans uh, came up to ask a question in full Chilton cosplay, or I should say crossplay. And um, the fan had a Chilton mask and a cane. It was a whole thing. Uh, so that's what we're referencing there. And then also I'll just mention that Scott Thompson makes an appearance at the end of the of the conversation as well. Uh, so that's, when you hear another voice chime in, that that's who you're hearing. Hello, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm Raul, how are you guys? <laughs> Congratulations. Yay, I'm alive. I'm, I'm alive. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> so did, did you know the last season that you were alive? I knew last season that, uh, that I was shot in the face and in a coma. <laughs> and I knew that he said I was coming back and I believed him sort of. Um, and I was like, I think I'm coming back. I hope so. Everybody kept saying, oh, well, that's a series wrap. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> when we finished the last episode. Uh, but I trust Brian. Uh, I'm glad that he decided to make such a public announcement out of it. <laughs> you know? And I was really surprised by the... How do you feel about being a fan favorite? I know, that was awesome. Really? Blew my mind. Honestly, it, it's the most incredible compliment because most of my life I've done theater. And when you do theater, obviously the audience is there and you have this relationship, this conversation with them every night. When you're in front of a camera, we do these episodes and then we don't, they don't air for six months. Or, you know, you do your work and the crew, if the crew likes it, then you're probably in good shape. And, and we try to make each other laugh and we ad-lib stuff and, we, and, and then you have to forget about it. So to come somewhere like this, where you're hearing audiences cheering for you and cheering for your character, or to see that stuff online, or wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> it's that reinforcement that we just never get in front of a, you know, in front of the camera. That's great. And character's such a jerk. I'm just really surprised. <laughs> he fills such an important role. 
show, though, especially in this se- last season as well, but especially in this season because we need to laugh at yes. a certain point. Um, what? How, how do you keep the character comedic, um, but not a joke when he's not supposed to be? I I feel like one these guys, Steve, Brian, the, the writers always have a particular turn of phrase that they give me that is, you can spin it either way. So one of the things I look out for is uh, if the moment warrants uh, the joke or, or not. There's a really great scene with Jack in episode 6 where uh, Chilton is cracking, well he's not cracking jokes, but he has a line that I love where Jack says, you have an agenda, and he says, yes, I have an agenda, living, which is very funny. But that the scene ends up playing not funny because then Chilton begins to speak honestly and he says he's, he's got the right profile, he fits, and he's hurt that he's saying this about his friend. And what we filmed is you're seeing two guys realizing this is someone we trust and love and believe in and want to and admire that we are seeing these things about. So the we could have played that very funny, but I wanted to flip it. My favorite thing about humor is that humor pulls the audience to you. If you get them laughing in the first half, you can guarantee you can get them crying in the second half. Uh, it is Chilton's sense of humor and his superiority, I think, that gets uh, audiences on his side, which is better than just being some tedious jerk, you know. And we know that he is Hannibal's captain. We know that he is Hannibal's tormentor. And and now what they've done is create this backstory where this man has every reason to torment this guy. Um, but a lot of that's on the page, you know. There is another line: um, "One can grow to love beats," which was like in the first episode back. There's nothing funny about the line, one can grow to love beats, but it ended up being very funny. So, so, you know. And that's how he works. In the last season, he uses a cane. Now he has, he has been shot. How would feasibly affect children? I've told Brian I want to go all David Cronenberg on this thing. <laughs> I, I, I do. I want him. I want like an Ed Harris face from I probably will regret that. Uh, I, I really like Game of Thrones, for instance, and I know that Tyrion Lannister loses his nose in the books, and they chose not to do that on the series, probably not to spend five hours in makeup every day. Um, so uh, maybe I'll regret it, but I, we could probably accomplish something like a milky, gross eye with a contact lens. Or, I don't know. I think, he, I think he has to be scarred in the series, so. Plus, I love that stuff. First show I did on Broadway was Rocky Horror asking to give me a Marilyn Manson eye. I love that stuff. The weirder, the better. Your character um, in other incarnations uh, is fairly one-dimensional, very functional. Um, in this, in this show, it's he's, he's very. It's a very sophisticated and interesting portrayal, and serves a tremendous range of purposes. How did? How did Brian explain to you what his vision was for the character, and then how did you go about constructing that? That's a great question. Uh, Brian offered me the part, and I said, well, Chilton is that smarmy jerk, right? I don't want to play that guy. Exactly my word, uh, <laughs> And he said, you will, he'll be sexy and charming. <laughs> and I was like, how do we do that? Um, when I got to set, they kept talking about douchey, like uh, his clothes, his his, uh, his home, his um, shoes, his uh, the car he drove, and I said, I don't, I didn't want that. I didn't want to feel. I felt a judgment coming from not Brian, but from the 
design that was happening. So I had to end up embracing that and say like, okay, I'm, um, I, I need to feel uncomfortable in my skin, which is, I need, like I asked him to put me in bikini underwear, like everything about him from, from the bottom up makes my, me, Raul, feel uncomfortable. So I know I'm in that body and then I just trust that that's enough. And then Brian writes an intelligent guy and I try to deliver his, his, uh, his cunning and his intelligence. Brian uh, knew me, we'd worked together before. He knew what qualities I was capable of portraying, so he never once said, I want you to do it like this. But he knew that I didn't want to play someone who was going to be tedious, which is how he's described by Thomas Harris. He's tedious. You have to get past him to get to the interesting stuff. And Brian knew I would not want to do that. And anybody who is playing someone unlikable is always going to look for the thing that you like about them. I couldn't walk on set every day hating the man I was playing, so I had to find for myself the, the things I appreciated. And Brian kept writing for that direction, so it was a, um, a very uh, symbiotic relationship that way. He was writing the things he knew I could do, and I was trying to accept the things I didn't like about Chilton. And then these guys would provide me with these delicious scenes. And, uh, it's kind of chicken or the egg, but it began to feed. It's a really creative show to work on that. It was a surprising and wonderful performance. Thank you very much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I come from Broadway. <laughs> you do? What have you done? Stop it. Stop it. Finish. <laughs> Am I done? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I have another table. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank nice you. to talk to you guys, really. Next up here is uh, the the duo of Scott Thompson and Aaron Abrams, uh, who of course play the Jimmy Price and Brian Zeller. Uh, so, so the the two lab techs still standing at this point in the show, and uh, <laughs> it's one of the louder segments. <laughs> and uh, there was again we, we reference the spin-off that the two of them mention in, in the panel. So uh, for the Comic-Con Hannibal panel, if you'd like to have more context to that, it's something about a bait shop and yeah, it, it's, it was, it was a good time. So that's what's coming next. I need to know right away. Did he sing? Because no. if not, that's no. unfair. Did he sing? I have to report him. So you're going to sing, right? I'm, I'm not. You have to make it up. <laughs> so, oh, no. One, two, three. <laughs> uh, yes, question? Question, Raul? So how do you feel about your character's background in science connecting your relationship with your mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. That's a very good one. Making fun of actors. Well, first of all, I want to see the spin-off. That sounded, that sounded delightful. Let's, right. let's get that started. And if you do it, are you going to live tweet them? Because your live tweets oh, are fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, try, you know, I never used to do a live tweet until Brian started doing it, and I understood now what that was. It's you know, about connecting with fans. That's also what Comic Con's about in general. But that's, you know, I think writing his coattails is the easiest way I get to come along and make a joke of it as well. He's such screaming, such actual great information and script pages and blah, 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 blah. It's just, uh, it's a great way to interact with fans. But that's, that's, that's spin-offs happening. Yeah. Yeah, Scott's running it right now. Nice, that's great. It's been I'm running what? The spin-off. Jimmy P and the Z. That's why I checked out for a bit. That's right in my head. Did you see me check out? Yeah. He does that when I talk, because it's just like, I got a very dulcet, raspy tongue. 
<laughs> yeah, dulcet raspy tone. All that dulcet raspy tone again. <laughs> hypnotic. Hypnotic dulcet raspy tone. Oh, can we talk about this show for a second? Sure. What? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's that show? Oh, all right. Yeah. How did Beverly's death affect your characters and will affect your characters going forward? Because usually lab rats aren't in a lot of danger. No, right. no, they're not. Um, I, it definitely made my character drink more off, off camera. <laughs> yeah. Your character. I decided after Beverly's death that I would be hungover for every episode. Method. I'm a method actor. Very method. Uh, when it comes to drinking, he's very method. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, that the death of Beverly, the, probably the death that's affected these two characters more than any death, obviously, ever has. But I think there's probably some tragedy in their background, don't you think? Yeah, and I think it's a thing that propelled us. I mean, that's when it became very personal. Yeah. And I think that's when the FBI started working outside the box a little bit, and they started doing, like, it was kind of a secret operation yeah. that got everyone a little bit in trouble, and so the Nixon had come in and, and spun the gates. And I think that'll happen even further in season three now that Hannibal has laid waste to Jack and, and Will, and that it becomes even more personal for us. Uh, to catch him and punish him. I, mean, I know that when we yeah, got killed, very personal. We, we really hated the shit out of him yeah. because we thought he had done Hetty. And, and now that, you know, when we get our hands on Hannibal, it's going to be... Uh, he's still going to be terrifying, so we probably won't say very much to him. But uh, <laughs> yeah. inside, we'll be personally very excited. But when we tell him. people what we say, we'll say, oh, so I told him. And then, <laughs> yeah. What did you really say? I went, eh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I love the detail that uh, your characters get uh, very early on, particularly in Oof, which unfortunately then they didn't air. But right. um, but but having Jimmy, the, the alcoholic, I'm not recovering. Was yeah. such a, so that's great. like my favorite line in the whole for, uh, for episode. I mean, the whole series for us too is the, that line. That line, yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, and then, then one of the things I found most interesting, I've been rewatching season one uh, for my podcast, and. Z seems to have really progressed because he starts out as a somewhat antagonistic force. He's got he's the leak for Freddy, and he's like combating Will a few times early in season one. And whereas he seems more, everybody's kind of come together more in season two. I think yes, I think that arc absolutely starts off so um, uh, uh, threatened by yeah, Will because I, I I probably fancy myself the smartest guy, no offense, but <laughs> smartest guy in the crew until Will came along and. and uh, to the point where I was detrimental to the cases, where I was leaking information and anything to sabotage the case, and then it grew to just hitting Will um, because I thought he was not right. I didn't think he was trustworthy. It became very much about the group and, and the, uh, the cases and, and catching killers, and I thought that he was bad for FBI, and then it became that I had to suck it up and apologize to him. Uh, in this last season, which I thought was a great way to play it. I mean, I still could have hated him. I still could have blamed him for, for Beverly's death. Um, Brian had that option to keep playing that hate for forever. Um, but to have it grow into something, and then maybe it continues to grow into natural friendship, drinking buddies. Yeah, sorry. sorry. But if Will asked Sarah for a drink, I might go with him. I'm just saying. Um, I'll drink you both under the table. I understand. Well, you got the, unfortunately, the, I... We were saying on our podcast we wanted to see more of you guys uh, in season two because it got so oppressive at times. Are there tools that you guys use to, to make sure that you're in those scenes of great character, even those, to the smallest moments? You mean like, what do you mean? You mean blackmailing them so that they write things for us? <laughs> right, no, that works. 
So you mean like, do we do things to make uh, the, the scenes more indelible that aren't actually in the writing? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, what, what character like tools do you have? Yes, we did discuss things, and actually, we mostly figure out what we're doing in the van ride there. Yeah, I mean, there's right? ways to to um, not carve out moments, but to make it make what we're doing specific in a way where we're not uh, that we're fully formed characters and we're yeah. not just uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, commenting That's on the side kind of or a or just an information machine that we have moments of humanity or whether that's a joke or an argument or uh, nudging or whatever it is that we are fully for, as fully formed as everybody else in the show and I think the writing and, and everybody involved in the show also does a great job in yeah. making us not uh, a cog in some sort of procedural machine because yeah. the show's not a procedural right so and we decided very early on certain things that we would I would be a little prissy and um do we decide that, or were you just... I just am. Yeah. And a bit of a know-it-all. And I was going to be a bit of a jerk, because we just decided... As a character, we decided I decided... that he was, you know, abrasive, and um, what else did we decide? I was that Lawrence talk very would, raspy. That Lawrence would be very intimidating, because yeah. we just decided we decided that. that. <laughs> and then... We decided that the day he yelled at us yeah. on camera, and then, like, pee came out a little bit. And then we decided, you know what? Our character's going to be intimidating. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> But yeah, we do. We work out little things like we go, we're gonna disagree over this sort of thing, and it, it makes them come come alive. You know. I can keep, but I don't want to. So your, your scenes uh, look uh, the most improvised in the whole show. It's like oh. you're you're having a blast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a, it's like an oasis in, in the whole yeah. show. Yeah. Oasis. I That's like a, that. I like that. Very like good. Table yeah. four. Yeah. <laughs> From the non-native English speaker exactly. people. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. So Showed y'all up. Thank you very good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Woof. I prefer yours, but let's keep going. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, is it true you have room for improvisation and stuff? I mean, again, I think we find places to to really um, elaborate the minutia stuff. But the scripts, there's like a few. There have been lines where we go. Absolutely. Let's one line we ask right that we can say. Absolutely, we're yelling stuff. You know, fist bump. <laughs> it was not in the script. And I don't think our argument about stool samples just was the director was slow to yell. So we kept arguing. Or we kept celebrating oh, or doing or everything. Yeah, that favorite. worked out. I can't believe that. That's one of my favorite moments. Um, they left that in. Yeah. And me laughing not, at you. You know, there's a lot of respect for the writing on the show that it's really not necessary. I mean, the show is very tight. Yeah. And the show doesn't want us to be... Um, doesn't doesn't want us to be these procedural characters. Yeah, we're not these stock characters like that. Because that's a real cliche. That's become a real cultural trope. Can I say trope? Yes. I can't say stereotype, but I had to make no, that before saying trope. very good before. So I used trope. I liked it. But you know, so we're not wacky, but we're we're amusing. But I think all people that are in that kind of a, a, a job have to use humor, whether they're like a, an emergency room surgeon or, you know, or a I appreciate uh, the nursery school teacher. Right. I don't know. That's good, good. But I appreciate the, the comment that it feels improvised, but, you know, generally, our, our, we just get to be a little looser than everyone else, because we're not going, like, we can't, we're not closing our eyes and sweating was, over hallucinations was, in a corner. Yeah. We get to 
we have to actually be a little bit looser so it feels that way. But yeah. the, it's really a testament to the show and the writing that that and less to us. Because if to, we really improvised, it would it would we we unusable. Unusable. Are I you mean, hearing this? I Are you hearing what we're I saying right now? That it would be a lot of that, and you, everybody would change. change. You're just that good. I have the power to ruin the show. <laughs> can, I guess, oh, sure. can you guys talk a little bit about the various things that you guys have to work with, the various bodies and things and set, setups? That you, that well, you we to took classes. With? We took a couple of days of classes on how to actually take fingerprints and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's they're gross dead bodies. It took a while to adjust. It's especially weird when it's not a dummy. Yeah. And you forget, and all of a sudden the actor oh, who's naked on your slab like breathes for a yeah. second. You're like, oh, yeah. oh, right, you're not. A fake thing, and you're, you're a, and you're absentmindedly rubbing her breast. Uh, that's not, that was not, no. no. You did that once. No, I did not do that. There was, and you were like, I went. I am offended at the accusation. I would never. Okay, it was me. It was the crackler this episode. Is the four, and I remember that this went very wrong. <laughs> and I realized that. I right, let's go back to Oasis and just cut there and pretend like that was the end. Why? But I, okay, I, I don't remember any thyroid. I think I would remember this. But, you remember, but, but the guy who played yeah. the crack, you know the kid that, that's uh, sewn into the people in the silo? I do remember, like, a one, and you might have told me to stop, and I was, like, picking up the crack allure, and we weren't sh- shooting, and I was just kept picking at it, and I realized, and I think some, you might have said something, like, oh, or he looked at, he opened his eyes and was like, I'm here, I'm nude, and you're touching me. And I realized that wasn't, but he was a lovely guy. And, and that's their fault for hiring him. Sure. He's too nice. That's his problem. And you were also a little bit drunk. Right? I was a little drunk, and I was yeah, I was a little drunk, and I was attracted to him. <laughs> and who knew that crackler was my trigger? <laughs> All right, last thank you. Thanks. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our final conversation was with Caroline Davina, who of course plays Alana Bloom, and uh, she's a little quieter than the other uh, people we spoke with, and. Uh, the audio was not helped by Scott Thompson and uh, Aaron Abrams being uh, particularly boisterous at the table next to ours. So this one's the hardest to hear, but hopefully there's enough that you guys can make out that you'll enjoy the segment as well. I was going to kick off briefly, but I was very glad to see all the wonderfuls love at the panel. Me too. I love that show, and your performance is fantastic. Thank you. I'm kind of amazed that after 10 years and such a short life, people would still uh, discover it, even. Yeah. Really it clearly touched uh, a core really? of yeah. our generation. Yeah. But this is a Hannibal panel. Um, the, your performance in particular moments, uh, there's a lot of gets to be funny at times. She gets, I always love that season one. Rude. That when she's yelling at Hannibal that one moment. You don't really expect that she's going to. But, um, but when... When you have to be destroyed, very good at that. Um, and so both in the season one finale and then as she sees Freddy, um, the strength that Alana has to have to not leave when Hannibal gives her the option, uh, where do you think that, that comes from and how tempted is she tempted at all to leave in that moment in the finale? I think that's what happens too with Will and Hannibal all the time. There's always for Will a temptation to do good and to do to fall into what Hannibal is. Because there is a darkness to him that's very it's like being on the edge of a cliff, you know, you wanna you're curious what's what's out there, what would that feel like? 
And I think for Alana in that moment, there was probably a moment of, did this really happen? She's in shock. You know, she's in traumatic shock, I think. And when he's standing there in full blood, I mean, obviously now she knows it's true. He's doing it in front of her. But I think there must be an inkling of, is this really true? Or am I dreaming? Yeah. But with everything that's happened, I think she feels a lot of guilt and a lot of anger for not having seen it. And there's no way that she can walk away and put also her own life in danger. Because he's such a manipulative person that he says you can walk away, but might not let her. <laughs> the only choice is to stay. She should have checked her gun. <laughs> How do you make a home when she's walking up those stairs? The, I, the many people I talked to just were like, felt like that was a horror movie moment. Yeah. Run outside. Don't go up the stairs. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the discovery of, of uh, Casey Roll and, and uh, Abigail. Uh, Alana very much becomes her surrogate mother and then ends up in the same fashion, leaning out of the front. So, is there, if you guys both survive, who knows? Is there any anything that can be done in that relationship? Are they still bonded, do you think? Um, Abigail and Alana. Yeah. It's going to be hard after she her out the window. I think any therapist should know better than to, and that's what she says to Hannibal and Will all through season two. You are not supposed to be talking to each other anymore because you try to kill them. And Hannibal, as a therapist, should know better. That's what Alana tells her gently all through season two. So I think she would know better than to continue trying to help Abigail after she tried to kill her. But, I mean, I think Alana's going to be completely changed in season three with everything that happens. And I think she's going to start uh, working very differently. I mean, that's my feeling. I don't know what Brian feels or what he's writing right now, but logically for me, she would probably say to herself, I can't follow my instincts anymore. I can't go by rules anymore. Because obviously the FBI is not solid enough or wise enough to prevent everything that happened. So she's probably going to go cowboy style and go her own way now. She's, she's been over the, the last couple of seasons a bit of a damsel in distress at times. Yes. Um, uh, a lot of it because she didn't realize what was going on. Now she knows what's going on. Are we going to see um, more of a strength in her and a... I think she's always been strong. In the first few seasons, it was a quiet strength. I feel like she never had to scream too much to be heard. She trusted herself. I think she's really good at what she does. But now something is broken that way. And it's really late to talk about She's... She's... Um, you're right. It's, she's been very quiet, and there's been there's been a principle to her, but she's never really been one to sort of go out and say, "Look, you're going to listen to me right now, and if you don't, I'm going to take steps." Yeah. Um, she's been trying to sort of work the system, and it's not really confront too strongly. 
because if she had done so, maybe she would have been rejected from the whole I think Jack Crawford would probably have been the type to go, you're screaming too loud, I get to scream, you don't go <laughs> So, but now she's probably going to, because she's not giving up, I, I don't think, or else she wouldn't be back. If she just left her work and went on a beach somewhere, I wouldn't see her again. So clearly she's not going to have given up, and she's probably going to change her methods and probably be a lot harder and stronger, I guess, and less vulnerable, or at least shielded from what she lets into Because I think that feeling is beautiful with the black ink seeping into her. I don't think she wants that feeling anymore. She's probably going to build a shield. What do you think about the possibility that, there will, that Brian will kill off the dog? The dog? My, my dog? Any dog. Yes. Uh, I won't say I think Brian loves animals. Yes. He's just two dogs himself. He'll probably kill himself before he kills the dog. <laughs> One of my favorite Alana moments in season <laughs> is... <laughs> You want to be at that table? Oh, you no. no. Uh, it's when she, she and Will share that lovely kiss, but she withdraws and, like you were saying, trusts her instincts and does the, the smart and protective move for herself. It's something that never happens on TV shows. How aware are you of Alana's uh, role as one of the main women on the show and the ways in which she subverts or fulfills uh, common uh, representations of women, like that is a clear subversion of what we usually see. How does that inform your performance, or do you just not let that in? I don't think about it, but I like hearing about it. I think it's interesting that you noticed it. Um, I think she's in a man's world, and she's trying to be strong and fit in without losing her femininity. I think that's important. Um, I think the fact that Brian made her female while she was a man in the books is a kind of an ode to, to women and to the fact that he realizes that he needs us on the show to make it rich and, and, and believable and not just have us be victims is really important. Um, but yeah, I think she's trying to make smart choices in a man's world and not uh, lose herself, lose her woman in a sense. But, but it's interesting what she said. I like it. Yeah. You mentioned that she, she's going to be more shielded because of what happened to her. I mean, yes. I don't know. That's what I'm like feeling. So you think she's going to be uh, going the route of Clarice Stalin? Stalin? Clarice Stalin, yes. Clarice. Clarice. Oh, I thought you were like yeah. the Russian. That would be interesting. Um, so, more like Clarice, you said. Yes. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, Clarice, what was interesting about her was Jodie Foster was kind of like, not frail, but she's not like solid lady, you know? So you could feel she had, yeah, a, a vulnerable core, but that really made her, her shield very strong. Yeah, so possibly, yeah. Maybe more along the lines of three. Did, did you and Brian and Matt, or any combination thereof, um, before you started the, the segment of the story where you, where you and Hannibal, your character and Hannibal's get, get together, um, about whether Hannibal actually has a sex drive 
is attracted, like, the, the degree to which it's a performance for, for his character. Yeah, I often wonder if he was just manipulating her or if there was any truth to his feelings. And Matt felt like he did like a lot of that Hannibal did have, I don't know if he loved her, but he was, he had, like, a tender feeling towards her. Would he have been able to have a real strong relationship with her had she seen him, accepted him for reviews? I don't know. But, um, yeah, he felt like he wasn't just using it. And did that did that affect your performance? Um, not really, because either way, she doesn't know. I can't take that as a scenario. I did like. I mean, I guess as a, as an actress, I did like the fact that he liked her for real. <laughs> she can be. But um, <laughs> being liked by Hannibal is a mixed blessing at best. A lot of. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, Alana's the character that, one of the, probably the character actually that we know the least about of the, of the central cast. We know a little bit about Will's father. We know about Hannibal through his relationship with Adelia. How much of her life, outside of her words, do you explore as an actress? Not much. Okay. Uh, I know actors who write a notebook filled with notes of what they believe their character has where they grew up, what happened to them. I don't tend to go there that much. But I'm eager to know more about her personal life. Yeah, I didn't mention it to Brian. I'd love to know who she is when she's on her own. If she sees a psychiatrist. That or... What does her house look like? like I, we don't need to see it, but I kind of want to know if she goes back at night in her apartment. Is she going to drink alone, or is she going to go out with friends? Like, who is she outside of the FBI? But then again, that's quite normal. We don't see many of these characters on the Hannibal be who they are on, on their own. A little bit more on Hannibal than Will, for sure. Maybe we'll get to see that season. I don't know. So there's all of the audio from the 2014 press room, uh, Hannibal Press Room at Comic-Con this year. It was a, a treat to get to speak with so many different people associated with the show and get their thoughts on season one and two and a little bit on season three, maybe. Um, thank you. If you're still listening, thank you for sticking through. And, uh, uh, and again, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.